your way to episode 121 of the podcast Rank and Review, which makes sense. This episode, returning guest Robert Reynolds and I are going to be talking about Stephen King again. This is the fourth time round with Mr. Steve King, and uh, both Ribs and I are very well versed in his words and his universe, so look forward to that. But do enter into it with a bit of caution, because... As usual, there will be coarse language, and there will be spoilers for the books and the film adaptations of the books, which we will be talking about. As always, please send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And please check out Rankin Review at its website at rankinreview.ca. Also, Katie's keep your ears to the ground and listen and look for that motion picture book of trespasses because it's it's out there it's it's on its way so without further ado let's get into stephen king mr robert reynolds <laughs> mr larry parson <laughs> welcome back to rank and review uh and once again we're gonna we're gonna be talking about stephen king which is exciting to me both you and i are long Long-time fans of Stephen King. Oh yes, uh, I used this this podcast to out myself as a Stephen King fan because, as I said, uh, I used to be kind of like ashamed of it. It was I don't know if it was too popular or for some reason for a long time, especially when I was in high school. Stephen King seemed to have some stink on him. Like if you were reading Stephen King books, you're not really reading. You're reading Stephen King. Well, for for me in high school, the uh, well, it was grade school when I read my first, uh, which was Christine. The stink on it for me was. Mom better not find me reading this. Forbidden. Forbidden. Forbidden, yes. yes. Well, there was a bunch of Stephen King on my dad's shelf, but uh, yeah. I guess I've said before, I forced myself to quite slowly read the epic novel of It. And I remember seeing the Twilight Zone adaptation of Grandma. Oh, yes. Like, with the 80s Twilight Zone episode, and being really freaked by that. And then I remembered, like, that's a Stephen King story, and sort of started connecting the dots that way. Um, but... I think what's interesting about the movies we're going to talk here is we have three of his sort of familiar pulpy kind of Stephen King works, and then we have three very sort of him trying out different areas. And one of which, of course, is one of his first. Yeah. Uh, Salem's Lot was a million years ago. Yeah. And that one is interesting because I think that's sort of a vibe that he'll return to, where he'll introduce us to a town and then destroy it, right? We'll have the under the dome and, and needful, needful things, things and, and like, uh, but dairy yeah. to an extent in yeah. it. Yeah, 
But Salem's Lot, yeah, was his first whack at it. And in some ways, I think my favorite, at least of that type, um, structurally, where he introduces you to an entire town and then basically tears his kids, everybody. He he did it it, uh, recently again on, uh, oh, what's it called? Beautiful Things. The one he he co-wrote it with uh, Owen King. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, that's it. Yeah, I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through it right now. Kind of does the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Here's the town, here's the people, nuke it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll spend a good two-thirds of the book making sure that you know every corner, and now the last third of the book we're going to rapidly just... Well, when you, when you introduce an entire town, uh, in uh, Perfect Storm he does it as well. Yeah. <clears throat> um, or no, it's not called Perfect Storm. My Alzheimer's is showing today. <laughs> the Storm of the Century. Storm of the Century, thank you. Um it does the same thing in there, but that that ensures you've got a you have a a, a body count. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many characters. Hey, <laughs> what I do find with those types of stories because they're so familiar is I can sort of see him setting laying the traps that are going to pay off later. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're familiar with Stephen King world, you you kind of mm-hmm. know where you are in that. But then we have these other ones like the Green Mile. To me, has always been an interesting piece of Stephen King's work because it's a little kind of a mixed bag of genres. It's kind of fantasy drama horror-y sort of. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not even that much horror in it other than the execution, but we'll get to that when we talk yeah, about the... but I feel like you take any one isolated element of that and on its face it seems like it doesn't know if that works for me. But putting all of those elements in one basket for some reason did work like crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I love that it was, uh, he, it was at a point in his career when he could get away with just about anything, so he actually apologizes I, I bought the novellas when yeah. it came out one a month yeah he actually apologizes in the forward of the first chapter because he said I have no idea how this ends yeah hopefully this book <clears throat> pays out for all of us yeah, if, if not I apologize for this unended story <laughs> well and it's happened before he did some digital uh, novella the plant I think he was yes. doing it a chunk yeah. of the time and he eventually just threw up his hands it was just yeah it, it kind of petered out he painted himself to a corner and just sort of stopped. But this one kind of paid off for him, I think. Um, Eleven twenty two sixty three is another one of those two where it's a real mixed bag of genres all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think this is the well. I guess Dolores Claiborne is probably the least horror-y. but uh, there's so much going on in Eleven twenty two sixty three that I think one of the big benefits we need to talk about that is that it's it's an eight episode miniseries. It's, yeah, I don't think that could work. It's in one of his hours. longer books too. So, yeah. and it's not one of those things where it would be easy to condense. No, there's lots of <clears throat> books that are epic that you could trim the fat on, but there there this are one's tough. There are some elements of it that I suppose could have been cut. Yeah, uh, for brevity, but that would just leave loopholes. Like as as it happens in you know all time travel stories, there's always somebody who can point out, yeah, but how how did this happen? If you know, well, and he has the, to establish the rules. And he establishes and little, he establishes them very meticulously. Yeah, and they're well thought out. Sort of a Groundhog's Day structure, but more interesting in that your Groundhog's Day lasts as long as you choose it to. Yeah, you can go, but you can go like uh, um, you can go for five minutes. Yeah, or you the can go butch, for five the, years. The, the the diner owner who just goes long enough to buy ground beef for the month and then sods back off (laughs) so yeah interesting and that's sort of 
later in his career, he's definitely leaning more in sort of, yeah, I'm a more diverse, or not just a horror writer guy, but mm-hmm. every single time some horror creeps in. Like, did there need to be a brutal hammer murder <laughs> in, in 1122? Like, probably not. That that electrocution sequence in the Green Mile <laughs> yes. is fucking horrifying yep. both in the book and in the film like he still he still pays off the genre fans even in even in stories like Dolores Claiborne frankly. well even in he's been kind of on a crime thriller uh, kick lately and uh, the Mr. Mercedes trilogy right which the first one is a pretty straight up uh, serial hunt for the serial killer right like hunt for the mad uh, the spree killer guy the second movie is, or the second book rather, is a pretty standard hunt for the serial killer thing. The third book is a hunt for the serial killer thing, but it's the serial killer from the first one in the body of somebody else. So all yeah. of a sudden, that came, that curveball came out of nowhere. Oh, I thought we were doing a crime trilogy, and well, no. Remember, it's Stephen King. Everything's on the table. <laughs> His most recent one, I just finished, uh, uh, The Outsider. Um, for the first two thirds of it, seems like a a whodunit, a mystery thriller, murder mystery thriller, and then two-thirds of the way through, oh, no, it's a monster. We're after a monster. <laughs> yeah, it's a monster. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, again, I haven't read that. I, I'm a little bit behind, especially, yeah, in the, the trilogy, <laughs> the, the crime trilogy, when the Mr. Mercedes, what is there? There's, uh, I can't even remember the Finders name. Keepers and... And another one. And another one. <laughs> Uh, another thing I wanted to bring, it, bring up, I don't know that it's Stephen King related, but I hear you have an amazing one-scene role in a, in a feature motion picture. <laughs> which, which, which motion picture would that be? Uh, it's called Book of Trespasses. You play the character of Brad. Oh, I forgot I was in that. That was what... <laughs> God, we filmed that four years ago. Is it animated? What yeah. the fuck? No, we just took our time to make sure that it was Perfect. awesome. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, yeah. you want Scorsese shaking in his boots after this one? Any now, now that uh, it's it's getting out there, we're starting to promote Book of Trespasses. Anytime I have anybody uh, on the show who has something to do with the movie, I'm gonna I'm gonna bug them about it. So uh, you haven't seen it yet, but uh, I have I've <laughs> seen I've seen my scenes yeah. when we did the ADR. Yeah, uh, but uh, no, um, I play Brad the Dick. Yeah. That that's not his feelings? official name. Uh, I don't think that's his name in the credits, but we we decided that was. <laughs> that seems fair. Yep. Did it hurt your feelings when I, th- I thought to myself, okay, I got a one scene, a juicy one scene role, and I need someone to play a real asshole? I wonder if Ribs is available. <laughs> hey, that's just smart casting, man. <clears throat> well, if you want to put a face to the voice, yeah, you're going to have to check out Book of Trespasses, but uh, Robert Reynolds is very good in it. Yeah, you make an impression, I think. I think you're going to get some As a complete some tool bag. Yeah. You'll get some uncomfortable laughs. I, I, I was very happy with myself that uh, uh, three and a half years after initially filming the scene, I was actually able to make it, when we did the ADR, I was able to make him more of a dick. Yeah. Just a little extra layer. Just a little extra, you know, a couple of little, little inflection tweaks. And... <laughs> oh, yes. Well, thank you again for doing that. Thank you again for coming back to Rankin Reviews. Oh. Anything else that you wanted to say by way of introduction before we start to review these? I don't think so. Let's oh. jump in. All right. Well, the six Stephen King adaptations that we're going to be talking about. Which, uh, I, it's been so long since I've done one of these, I actually had time to reread all of them. Nice. Uh, we're going to take a look at the TV version of The Shining. Yes. Starring Stephen Weber and Rebecca DeMorne. We're going to be throwing down on this one. 
We're going to look at the Win or, or Manitoba shot. I'm not sure if it was Winnipeg, but it was somewhere in Manitoba. It was all kind of all over the place. Uh, Trucks, which is another adaptation of the Stephen King short story, which he himself took a crack at in the late 80s. It is one and only <laughs> directorial bow. We will talk about Maximum Overdrive on another day, but uh, <laughs> yes. Dolores Claiborne, which is a much more of a straight kind of drama thriller. Yeah, and I, I can't remember the yet chronology of uh, which one of the, them came first, the movie Dolores Claiborne or the movie Misery. Misery was first. Misery yeah. was first. This, okay, but this, this was when he was finally getting some recognition from Hollywood. It's like, oh, maybe this guy can write. Well, and part of the whole deal <clears throat> about promoting Dolores Claiborne, Kathy Bates is coming back to do another Stephen King yeah. movie, right? So, And it, for me, it was a... a kind of a, a a telltale sign was Jennifer Jason Lee on it because she seems like a person who's very picky about her projects. Yeah, she's legit. She said no to uh, True Romance because she'd just done that same role she said in this movie called Miami Blues. So the, in an alternate universe, True Romance co-stars Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> I kind of want to see that. Right? <clears throat> uh, we're going to look at the mini-series event, 11-22-63, starring the controversial figure of James Franco. <laughs> we'll get into it. One of the few times I've liked him, actually. We've, Not a in, fan. In our previous Stephen King episode, we talked about The Mist. Yes. Uh, uh, from Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont, we're going to talk about once again here, his adaptation of The Green Mile, an epic three-hour take on Stephen King's serial novel. And lastly, we will discuss the 2004 television adaptation of Salem's Lot, starring a dreamy Rob Lowe. Oh. Our conversation will touch on both of the novels, or the short stories, and these adaptations of them. As usual, expect spoilers and expect coarse fucking language. <laughs> Our greatest fears are all around us. Hiding in nightmares. Shrouded in evil. Waiting to be unleashed. You shine on, boy. Shine on? The Bible calls it having vision. I can feel it coming off you like heat. From Stephen King. The creator of It, The Tommyknockers, and The Stand comes a completely new vision of terror. Seize your destiny, Mr. Torrance. Jack? Coming, sweetheart. Are you gonna hurt me, Daddy? Come down here and take your medicine! Oh my God! You're never taking my son! This spring, go to hell. And pray you get out alive. Rebecca De Mornay, Stephen Weber. Daddy's mad at mommy. Stephen King's The Shining. All right, so very famously, Stephen King is not a fan of Stanley Kubrick's. Not at all, no. Shining. And I would guess... A fan I, of Stanley Kubrick, but not... No, the movie. Yeah. And I guess from an author's perspective, I get it. Like, that movie doesn't really tell the story that's being told in the novel. It is a fucking terrifying movie, and it is, like, amazingly acted and executed. Yes. And I can't really understand just dismissing it for all of its good qualities, but I get that he was like, that's not my book. Yes. Uh, um, it, it, part, of the, part of what stuck in his craw, too, was that uh, Stanley Kubrick quite publicly completely did not respect Stephen King's work. Right. At all. Like, at all. And, you know, you can see how that would... 
Well, and that's the thing. He's Kubrick was a fucking egomaniac. Oh, I mean, boy. as much as you want to, there's things <clears> to <throat> a bit of a sadist. Yeah, there's things to respect about Kubrick, but there are things to not respect about Kubrick. Yes, and in the end, you know, to him. There's going to be no name bigger on the title, not even Jack Nicholson. This yeah. is this is a Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah, as an auteur, he was he, he was second to none. Uh, but as a human being, not not super hot. As most as most auteurs turn out to be, tend to be complete shitbags. No no compromise and just weird flights of you know diva like behavior that well, are hard to respect. <clears throat> making Tom Cruise walk through a door 147 times in eyes wide shut. Destroying Shelley Duvall psychologically. Yep. <laughs> and, and like, he didn't do any kind of torture to Jack Nicholson to make him crazy, but he went out of his way to be a fucking asshole. Yep. To, to, to just be a monster. Yeah. But anyway, we're not here to talk about <clears throat> Kubrick's Shining, which we can and have done in this podcast twice before. Yes. It's one of the few movies that's been treated twice on the podcast. Well, we're, it is a, a classic. It is. But we're going to talk about Mick Garris's 1997 three-part adaptation. It is penned and produced by the author himself, mm-hmm. and it is shot in the hotel, which was the inspiration for the novel itself. So, why is it that I find this movie infuriating? Well, <clears throat> I think part of it is because you are madly in love with the Kubrick one. It's, well, that, that, that hurts a little, I it, guess. It, it's, if you're madly in love with something that's considered a classic, somebody having the gall to remake it, yeah. it was like when uh, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were seriously discussing, and it was in pre-production, remaking Casablanca. Yeah. Why? No. Stop it. But every now and then we'll get like an Evil Dead or like a, a proper remake that and, I'm like, the, thank you. The Evil Dead remake was actually, it didn't feel like a remake because the tone was so different. But... But it, was, it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. It was still a fine and little flick. I was totally shields up. Like I don't know, you guys. So like, I agree that they had an uphill battle, but I don't think I was so resistant as like I would not like this. I mean, I think I I will like it. Um, but well, here's the thing. I've said before. I, I respect Stephen King greatly as an author when it comes to his short fiction and his novels. I think when it comes to his screenplays, he tends to use literary tactics in a in a visual medium. Yeah, you have a point there. And it, <clears throat> it really hurts, especially when we're talking about the internal life of the characters, which he does in the books. A lot of times they'll have repeat phrases that they like to say, or things to, in this case, Jack, when he's drunk, will say things like, rum-de-dum, and, yeah. and, 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 <clears throat> and, and you and, little cur, and these weird Stephen King phrases that, again, when you're reading the book, you can autocorrect for, but when yeah, you're when you're, actor, reading the, when you're reading the book, it, it's fine, but they come off as weird as a viewer. It's really hard dialogue for a good, a really strong actor to handle, and I'm not going to be mean to Stephen Weber. I think he had... Some big fucking shoes to fill. That he did. And he had some really brutal lines to choke down. Like, really brutal lines like, to choke yeah, down. Yeah, like, like George Lucas prequel. Yeah. Hard to choke down. Uh, and that's the thing. That's the really the heartbreaking thing. Like, you could sort of... The prequels is almost a good analogy. Because before you saw the prequels, when you heard that 
George Lucas is going to make a new Star Wars movie and it's going to get into the history of Darth Vader. Everybody shit themselves blind. Yeah, he's going to have all the tools that he didn't have before and it's going to be his baby. No one's going to tell him what to do. It's going to be amazing, Ribs. Let's get excited, right? Let's let's, let's get our tickets now. Yeah, exactly. Let's line up. It's not out for another year, but let's line up now. And having read the book, I thought, well, I mean, it's interesting that the Kubrick went with a hedge maze instead of the hedge animals. But how do you create the hedge mat animals in 1980? Yeah. You can't. <clears throat> well, stop, you, stop motion, but Kubrick yeah. would never go for stop motion. And in 1997, you can do them on TV, I guess, but they'll look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this give and take. He's got much more room to tell the story, and that gives us much more of an arc. So we see a relatively sane father who's trying to make up for past mistakes turn into a deranged lunatic as opposed to a guy who's kind of crazy going from kind of crazy <clears throat> that, to completely crazy. That was one of the sticking points uh, for me was the character of Jack Torrance. When it's Jack Nicholson, he's already Jack Nicholson. He's crazy, yeah. Like, he, he, when he's the normal family man, yeah, but he's still Jack Nicholson. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Well, like, there's not as much of a difference where Steven Weber is... God, he's so... He's so milk toast and harmless. Well, and <clears throat> he's and, a decent actor, but because we've seen him on TV and Wings and Studio Sixty and all his, he's had this fairly straight TV career. Yep. It's hard for us to associate him. He sort of lives in the sitcom world, so it's a weird adjustment to see him in this. Sort of I guess, and especially since it, like his two co-stars are Rebecca De Mornay, yeah. mostly known for movies, and uh, Melvin Ben Van Peebles, right. Mostly known for movies, but <clears throat> not for a long time. Uh, so yeah, it was sort of uh, there was a, a kind of a disconnect watching. Well, there's, there's two movie stars and this TV sitcom guy. And yeah, <laughs> I think so there was a past uh, past prejudice about their careers. I guess can, I could see that getting dragged along. But I will also work again in defense of the book. Um, in the book, some of the scariest stuff for me is the interactions between Tony and and this little kid. Yeah. Uh, and, and, <clears throat> like, it's described as, like, he sees a little boy, like, blocks and blocks away down the street, sort of slowly waving at him, and he can hear the kid's words in his head. He can sort of glimpse Tony, but, like, not quite. He's there, And at that point not. in the book, you're, you, they're already kind of alluding to ghosts. Yeah. Like, is he a ghost? Is What's he... Kind of, is, is is the kid insane? Is it had to do with his psychic powers? Yeah. Can he see ghosts? But they jump right to the punchline with this series, is that it's a manifestation of his older consciousness. A, a more mature, more together Tony present, projects himself as an older version of himself and tells him things. And not only is it not scary, it's comic. It, it's I never got that impression weird. off the like right off the hop. That that we knew right away. I, yeah. I knew because I'd read the book. Cause yeah, it's it hardly. But like for me, that kind of not only did it take the scare out of Tony, it kind of for me broke the reveal if there well, was to be one. Also, showing Tony, I think, might have been a little bit of a misstep. Right, uh, would have been much better if you never saw Tony. Which is what Kubrick. Did. Which is what Kubrick did. It's, yeah. Well, Kubrick's a lot more. Psychological and and uh, obviously uh, who was the one that directed Mick Garris? Mick Garris is obviously strictly on the visual. He I'm not going to be mean to Mick Garris either. He like does decent TV stuff on a TV budget. Yeah, 
but he is hindered by the TV budget. I, here. <clears throat> but I, I do agree with you that the the miniseries is not as scary as the uh, the Kubrick. Right. But it does have great creepy moments. Um, one of my favorites is one where it's just a, a panning shot, an establishing shot of some of the empty rooms in the in the Overlook, and there's no music, there's no ambient sound. It's just looking quietly over these <clears throat> these rooms. rooms, and it's one where the dining room has all the chairs up, up on the tables, and then just. All at once, they all fall off at the same time. That was like that one really creeped the shit out of me for some reason. It is creepy that <clears> moment. <throat> that is the scary moment of the first chapter. And unfortunate, <laughs> and unfortunately, there the TV format kicks it in the nuts again because that happened and it cut to commercial. Yeah. Oh my god! And here's a Toyota. Or like it sort of resets itself. You can tell that the next chapter started here. They're going to go yeah. to exterior pans, and like the mood that was established <clears throat> there is just eradicated just because of the format of television. That's not necessarily the movie's fault. That's just because there was an insert commercial here moment there or whatever. Yeah, and they kind of had to do that. So. It does kind of take you out of it a little it bit. It does. I will admit that. And there are other things that I just think are scarier in the book by their very nature. The idea of the uh, fire hose that's coiled like a snake. And that the, the, the little kid is convinced would like lurch out and bite and him. strangle him. Or, yeah. The idea of that in the book is kind of creepy, but actually seeing it did nothing for me. Like nothing for me. That yeah. addition. Um, I remember the scene in the book finding it really creepy where they hear the elevator going in the middle of the night. They go to investigate it. There's nothing there, but there's a bunch of glitter and party hats on the elevator. Mm -hmm. I remember that being a really spooky moment in the book. Kind of just laid there for me in this movie, right? Well, you're a lot older and more jaded now. I, I suppose. <clears throat> um, and, yeah, Cortland Mead is the kid. Yep. Uh, who plays Danny Torrance, or, yeah, who's yep. having all these visions. And part of it is, this is just mean, but part of it is sort of his pudgy buck tooth kid face. Like, uh, he's a dobo. He's like, <laughs> yeah, for, for me, um, any adaptation of The Shining is the uh, a visual adaptation is 0 for 2 on the Danny Torrance scale. I hate them both. Yeah. And he is so important to the movie. Yeah. If we cannot be scared for Danny, then I don't know what we have left. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what I do like. What I will give you points for is Rebecca de Mornay's character, uh, Winfred, uh, like, they basically dismissed any Wendy. strength. Wendy, thank you. Uh, they dismissed any strength that they had in that character for the Kubrick version. Yeah, she was an absolute doormat. Completely, and that is the And antithesis. it didn't help that in real life Shelley Duvall was losing her mind yeah. thanks to her director. Exactly, <clears throat> but... Not only was that cruel and unnecessary, it was the opposite of the character presented here. Yeah. She is giving <clears throat> her husband a second chance, but he is on a fucking, like, short, short leash. leash. <laughs> and she is fighting tooth and nail for her family. Yeah. Particularly her son. Because she's not sure about the husband yet at this point. And we know right on the outset, there's no debate here. Like, if it comes down to choosing between her son and her husband, so nope. 100 Bye. fucking percent. <laughs> See you, Jackie boy. And that makes sense. He's kind of earned that. And because he's back on his heels that way, he kind of feels a little bit unmanned 
<clears throat> and she she fights back against him once things get physical. She physically and, well, even when yeah. it's just them arguing, yeah. <clears throat> uh, she argues. She becomes a powerful figure, and that that was missing. Yeah, I will concede that was definitely missing for me. That's one of the Kubrick's. one of the the. the Low points for me were Kubrick loses points as I hated Shelley Duvall's portrayal. Yeah, and, and again, not and her fault. No, I mean, he destroyed her mind to get that <laughs> performance, and I don't think it was worth it. Yeah. I think it was it headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. So, I like the Wendy character a lot more here, and that's good. But pretty much across the board, if I'm saying... I would just say read the book, I guess, is what I would say. If you want to know the true story of The Shining and you want it to be scary, read the book. This really does feel like a, not a Cole's Note version, it's a very thorough retelling of The Shining, but without the stakes and the, without the frights, for me. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess they, they do, the difference is between the 70s, or well, 1980, yeah. but, I mean, filmed in the 70s, uh, horror between then and, and the late 90s, it changed to 90s relied on jump scares. And for something like this, which is a, uh, a sort of an intimate psychological ghost story, jump scares don't work. Yeah. Jump scares work in stupid ghost stories like paranoid, paranormal activity and, <clears throat> and uh, the conjuring and shit like that. And they're designed to be ghost house boo scares. But yeah. The Shining is supposed to be more than that, I think. Yes, definitely. Um, one thing that I did not like about the Kubrick movie was the ending. Right. Now, while it was creepy, that slow zoom in on the photo from <clears throat> the 1930s, yeah. and Jack is there, uh, it doesn't give the satisfying ending of the, the book, where it, like, the hotel itself is supposed to be a character. Right. It is this haven of ghosts, and they, it, the Kubrick one kind of cut out the whole bit about the, the steam furnace. Yeah. As the beating heart of the, and <clears throat> it blowed up. And the history of the hotel is there, but not in Kubrick. If you've yeah. read the book and you see the dog-faced boy going down on that guy in the suit, then you know that means something. In the movie, it's this it's just random, just what the random fuck weird was shit. That, yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah, and and so I think that that because the history is what it's all about. That's it's this is a monster. This hotel is a monster that's been doing this for decades. Yeah, it collects better, ghosts. And yeah, traps for the better part of a century. And I didn't get that feel from the Kubrick movie. It was just random weird shit going on. And again, yes, they and, do go and into part, it. And part of it is part of it. Uh, I I could see. I've actually talked to somebody who. Their first impression, <clears throat> never read the book, watched the Kubrick movie, their first impression was <clears throat> um, uh, that a lot of this shit was stuff that Jack was seeing because he's going crazy. Right. It's not ghosts at all. It's like, no, this is a haunted house story. Yeah. It just happens to be a hotel. And But again, in the history, which is very interesting and in what starts to obsess the character in both the novel and in the miniseries, uh, I think informs the narrative that he did the same thing with It, with all these little subchapters, dairy a history. Yep. The more we learn about the haunted town, or in this case, the haunted hotel, the more context <clears> we have <throat> for the scares that we're going to be presented with. And whereas I felt like it accentuated things in the novel, in this version, that stuff, when we go back to the gangsters or the origin of the woman in the room, kind of slowed it down. I much preferred the things that I missed that I kind of wish were in the Kubrick thing. Why not the hornet's nest? Yes. <clears throat> the hornet's nest is actually... 
kind of like one of the creepiest things in the. It's the triggering it's one, thing. It's, it's one of the. It's one of the creepy. One of the things I like about the miniseries is that's like one of those legit. I said there was some very creepy moments. The whole yeah. bit with the hornet's nest is a, is a creepy one. Jack's in a bad place. He's fixing the roof, trying to you know not drink, trying to be good daddy, and he puts his hand pretty much right into this hornet. And nest. Almost falls off four stories off the damn building. Yeah, gets badly stung. But fucking eats it. He takes it. <clears throat> he takes it. He's like, that sucked that that happened, but I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to go have a drink. I'm not going to punch a hole in the wall. In I'm gonna, fact, I'm going to kill these wasps. I will and... kill these wasps and I will give it as an ornament to my son and it'll be a bonding thing. Yes. And yep. it completely fucking backfires on him and it makes him look terrible and it triggers this anger issue that he has. And, and, it, it, and it triggers Wendy again, too, because she's like, you... You yeah, did this. Yeah. Why did you? Why would you do this? And she's so used to blaming him that she will sometimes blame him when it's not necessary. Yeah, quite often. And and that was taken out of uh, the Kubrick, like the moments where that gives him dimension. That doesn't yeah. mean he just went crazy. It seems we see him fighting. Yeah, he's, see he's him fighting. Yeah, he's really trying to not be that guy. Yeah. <clears throat> and those moments where Wendy flies off the handle immediately and assumes the worst does not help. Yeah, <clears throat> either but, one of them. <laughs> Not but it's but it's more realistic within marriages that are troubled like that. Yeah, the supernatural manifestations are problematic to me largely too, especially the hedge animals because they're just not at all credible. Like, yeah, <clears throat> we're dealing with ninety-seven TV effects. Yeah, it, like bad CGI in the generation of bad CGI. Yeah. <laughs> but even some of the ghosts kind of reminded me of like what you'd see in the mirror in in the haunted mansion at Disney. Like, mm. there wasn't a lot of imagined detail. It was like, it was a boo face, you know? Boo! <laughs> okay. Uh, the woman in the room, they obviously spent the most time on, but you'd be, again, really hard-pressed to compete with Kubrick's version of that, especially on network television. <laughs> yeah, that was just genuinely horrifying. <laughs> yes. But things that make more sense to us now in this version, we see more context for his psychological downfall. When it seems kind of obtuse for him to deny the supernatural entities after he's already seen them, well, now he's starting to genuinely question if he's going crazy. And if you're going to think you might be going crazy, you'd probably fight that. Yeah. So it doesn't seem <clears throat> like he's being obtuse. It's like he's in denial now. Now it's sort of like denying that he had a drinking problem. Like... Yeah, this whole was, alcohol yes, metaphor is very, very like front and center. It's very mar much more front and center than than, and again, maybe just a lot of the problem I have is that a I'm a St Stephen King fanboy, so there's stuff in the Kubrick film, but I wanted to see this. I wanted to see this. I get yeah. Uh, and again, it's Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. I just they don't bring the characters to life. Well, Shelley Duvall brings the character to life. She's just not allowed in, to do when in, in the total opposite way that the character is alive in the book. Yeah, uh, she's barely recognizable as Wendy Torrance, and again, Jack is just he's 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 Jack, and then he's scary Jack. Yeah. And scary, regular Jack is still kind of scary. Fundamental important difference though is that I was terrified for Shelley Duvall's character in Kubrick Shining. And I was not terrified for Wendy's character at mm. any point in this TV version. And this is a four and a half hour plaque at this. This was over three nights. Three chapters of roughly 90 minutes well, each. <clears throat> on this one, I'm going to go after the director's name again. Mick Garris? I am going to actually go after him on this one. 
because a lot of that was just mood. Yeah. The lighting was very flat TV lighting. Like, it, the lighting in some scenes was reminiscent of, like, an episode of Next Generation, Star Trek. Right. Like, it's just all even lighting. Like, there's, there's no ambiance to it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I think everybody involved in the creative aspect of the miniseries made one major blunder. And, unfortunately, they just all dovetailed. Right. And so... I like seeing the more complete script brought to life, and I like I prefer Stephen Weber to Jack Nicholson's Jack. Yeah. I prefer Mar- Rebecca De Mornay. I thought I would miss Scatman Carruthers like crazy, <laughs> but Marvin Van Peebles is, is awesome too. <laughs> Again, I think well, it's a cartoonish character, so it's hard to say you overplay that. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. Um, Short of going, hey, 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 mama, right? Like, it was pretty fucking thick, right? Uh, I guess I just have to come down to, would I encourage somebody to watch this version? And I guess in the end, it's one of my least favorite of the TV adaptations of Stephen King. And some of those are pretty fucking brutal. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, anything taking place in the 1980s in the It miniseries. (laughs) The the kids' stuff. Half of it's great. Half of it's great. Yeah, yeah, the kids' stuff that that they... I haven't seen an ensemble of kid actors that good since, like, Stand By Me or Stranger Things. Yeah. There's not a weak one in the bunch. But... The stuff in the 80s did not age well. Oh my god. I think that what's what I'm going to say about this TV version of The Shining, I'm going to say a similar thing actually, hopefully coming up on the show, I'm going to be talking about The Abyss, which has a theatrical version and a director's cut. Of course it and, does. And <clears throat> for me, somewhere in between those two movies is a fucking amazing movie. <laughs> right? Yeah, see, that, that's the difference between, like, uh, uh, say, Ridley Scott. If you get an opportunity to get the director's cut... Get it. Get it, yeah. It will be amazing. James Cameron, for the most part, with the exception of Aliens, if you get an opportunity for the director's cut, don't. it'll just be longer. You don't want there'll it. There'll be some good stuff in there, but there'll be some stuff that just makes it longer and kills the pace. Well, and that's the exact analogy I was going for here, because as far as I'm concerned, I think that Stephen King might have done a chapter too far. So I you, think you, 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 you think it would have been better as two nights. two-part? Two nights. Do this story in three hours. Get as much of the detail that you want, but there is still it's still a novel, and a movie's going to be different than a novel. I think that's something that maybe Stephen King wrestles with, because in his mind, the author just thinks, well, just do the book. Why can't you just do the book? You can't just do the book because novels are different than movies. They're yeah. just <clears throat> different. Also, when you're dealing with uh, the director of... You're dealing with Kubrick, an auteur. Yeah. A visionary, uh, and then you're dealing with this other guy who's uh, a television professional. He's you know yeah he's a he's a work a day director. He did Critters too, the main course. So God bless it. Yeah. Oh God yes. <laughs> God yes. So I, I didn't like, I didn't, fine. I, didn't I didn't think they could actually outdo Critters, the first one. But Critters two was oh, mwah. Mwah. well. But here's the thing, and you know, would it be good for your career to work with Stephen King? Damn Stephen straight. King delivered the script, and he's a producer. So you know what that means? <laughs> You're shooting the script, yep. right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but but he's just a workaday director, and you can see it in, like I said, things like his lighting, the mood, the ambiance. It's just <sighs> so. 
mistake, like big mistake number one, big mistake for Stephen King, sticking with the seventies dialogue yeah. and the little catchphrases and stuff. I, I especially noticed it with uh, the kid, with Danny, when he's talking to himself and playing. Yeah, it's like yeah, kids don't talk to themselves and play the same way in the late 90s as they did in the 70s. Yeah. And they don't give spit out, you know, what they're thinking in that, in that you know, TV way or novel yeah. way. <clears throat> in the novel, that can be internal. In the TV movie, he just sits there and says it out loud for some reason in his annoying fucking sing-songy delivery. Yeah. <laughs> like... And, and, so, and then, big mistake for the director, as far as I'm concerned, is, is uh, it was just his lack of experience in... in cinematic uh lighting and and uh, ambiance like he he filmed it like a tv show it should feel big yeah it should feel big yeah well for me there should be dark corners in the room i can't recommend the movie because at the end of the day i'm not interested in endorsing a movie about the shining that's not scary and for me at the end of the day it's just not scary okay fair enough so <clears throat> for you it's not it's just not scary um for me, it, it's it's more of uh, I hate adaptations of books that adapt them way too much, right. unnecessarily. I understand adaptation needs change from one medium to another. I'm not like some kind of fanboy that <laughs> goes naive. off on how come Wolverine doesn't dress like he does in the comics because it looks dumb. Yeah. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> but uh, there had to be a little bit more adaption. Yeah, uh, but. There were fat. There's fat but, to be trimmed. But but I I really don't like it when they take the source material and just completely 180 it. No, like the main plot is there and that's it. Nine times out of ten, like I would be agreeing with you, and it has to be someone like Kubrick to do it. Basically, he took the characters and the setting, and that was it. And he made an epically fucking scary horror movie. Yes, this I, movie took the story and made a kind of drab drama. Yeah. Yep. No, that's a fair assessment. I my final take on it is. The Shining is a great Kubrick movie. It's just not a great Stephen King adaptation. And this comes closer to that, then. Yeah. From the short story by Stephen King, Trimark Pictures invites you to buckle up. You are now entering a town called Lunar. Morning. First time in this part of the cosmos. Looking for flying saucers? <laughs> I don't even want to live in a place like this. Dad, it's too quiet here. Where something strange is going on. Electricity is out for most areas. It'll be at least 24 hours before we can get to you. Can't get nothing on the CB. Phones are out. What's that? Is anyone driving? Trucks don't drive by themselves. A mysterious force has taken hold. These trucks appear to have an intelligence of talking to each other. They're up to something. And the traffic is way out of control. Look out! That man's boy is outside. Look out! Grab what's going on! Get away from my side! Now! We got the generator. I think we're gonna be next. Get you out of here, I promise. So the super tragic thing about having two shitty adaptations of the short story trucks is that as absurd as it is, I kind of like the premise. 
I love the premise. The, it, it, it's it's weird and unexplained, like they suggest a comet or something like yeah, that. Yeah, in this version, they're close to where a spaceship was supposed to have landed. Right? Something like that, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, a bunch of people, again, isolated in, in a, a truck stop that's being circled by all of these big rigs that have no drivers in them. Anybody and they're who, all angry. Yeah, anybody who goes out there gets fucking mushed. And Unless Stephen, they want something from them. Stephen King has proven in the past, especially with Christine, that he's really good at the descriptor of people getting mushed by automobiles. He's, he's able to turn just about any appliance into a monster. Yeah. And even in Maximum Overdrive, he takes it the extra step of it not just being yeah, the vehicle. Vending machine uh, anything kills, electronic. A, kills a peewee uh, league coach. Yeah. yeah. So, he, I, it's again, it's out there, but I, I think in a weird kind of Night of the Living Bread kind of, <laughs> right? Sort of, you take that template. A bunch of survivors, have, they're just thrust into this absurd, crazy situation. They have no choice but to deal with and it. They have no idea what the hell is going yeah. on. They have to deal with the trouble outside, and of course, as always, the interplay between the characters. Yep. And in Stephen King world, they're painted in complete black and white. They're absolutely good characters, and they're completely, you know, lit. But again, all of these ingredients have been used before. By successful. Stephen King a million times. Yeah, to <clears throat> success. And especially in a short, quick, dumb, violent, grisly format. There's just no reason for this not to work. And now it has officially failed twice. twice. Yep. So why is it that Chuck seems so hard to transfer from the page? You know, it's not the transferring of the story from the page it's the transferring of the premise from the page because there isn't enough there right. to happens. make a movie out of it it's, it's 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 like such a short story it's like three some odd pages right it goes by like you can read it in the time it takes to have a dump yeah and you might have put your finger on it i said a similar thing about uh the Children of the Corn, which has also, to my mind, been unsuccessfully attempted yeah, twice. Despite well, despite the fact that how many Children of the Corn movies have yeah, seven? It's been, they were successful financially, but I think unsuccessful at being good movies. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that you just have to respect the short story format. I think that Trucks and Children of the Corn would make great segments in a Stephen King anthology. <clears throat> but they have proven that stretching them out to 90 minutes or 100 minutes, there's not enough story there. So all this yeah, stuff... The a lot of his short stories are premise, but no story, because there's not enough... Running to the punchline. He'll spend more time in a novel. The short story to him are... And they're kind of fun for that, you know? Uh, the Boogeyman. A guy goes to a shrink to talk about his problem with the Boogeyman. But his shrink is the Boogeyman! boogeyman. Uh, uh, the raft. A bunch of kids go swimming, and they get eaten by a monster. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, they're, they're Twilight Zone episodes. Exactly, but they're good at being that, so let them yeah. be that. <clears throat> yes, let's <laughs> let's come up with a, uh, an eight-episode-a-year Stephen King anthology series. Yeah, or, yeah, they did that Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is getting warmer to the idea. They did Cat's Eye, right, which is yeah. just a series. Creepshow. Creepshow yeah. was the first one, yeah. And, and Creepshow 2 actually went right to Stephen King directly adapting short stories. That's where you want to go with this. Yeah. Because it's all of the padding on the movie that's slowing everything down, and the actors... And pointing are... out the possible ridiculousness of the premise. The premise itself might be great, but... And the other problem is that the actors know it. 
Yeah. It's on their face. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are trying. Some of them... There's one scene when I watched it again yesterday that I actually chortled when he asks... Uh, Timothy Busefeld asks uh, Brenda Backe, or however you say her name, uh, are you okay? And she replies, no, I'm terrified. And I was like, really? <laughs> Tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your friends <laughs> that you're terrified because you do not look terrified. No, it's not, it's not coming off. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, they if they characters if they just spent a couple beats setting up, we would be fine with. There's this one hippie dude uh, who's you know all peace, love, conspiracy theory guy that we're supposed to kind of like, so that we feel when he gets mowed down by the truck. Mm. But if he had one or two hippy dippy lines that said, "Remember me, happy hippie dude," yep. fine. He's got a dozen. Fuck off. Now I'm glad. <laughs> now I'm glad when you die. Well, that's that's the other problem with adapting a short story, especially ones these short. You've just met the character. Yeah. There's nothing, like, there's little to get invested. You're invested in the premise. Yeah. Um, you might get to spend, in some of the longer ones, a little more time getting to know one character in particular. Yeah. But it's not enough to flesh out a character in a 90 to 2 hour, 90 minute to 2 hour long movie. Yeah. And it's so obvious that they didn't have enough material. There are a couple of absurdly entertaining cutaway scenes that are like completely separate from the movie. There's a scene where a mailman gets killed by a remote control truck, which is just absurd. Oh, and there, there's endless scenes where it just cuts away to a driverless truck. Let's have it another yet another shot of the empty driver's seat. Yeah. And it's slowly rolling ominously towards somewhere. No one knows. And this next. scene does not care where <laughs> where this truck is going. But just to reestablish, by the way, did you know trucks are driving around without drivers? Yeah. Yes, I've been watching this for an hour. <laughs> and it will randomly cut to a character we don't know, so that they can yep. have a stupid death, right? Yeah. Like it's just like, oh, we gotta we gotta cut away so some time can pass. So let's kill an electrical worker on the wires, and yep. let's kill the mailman in a stupid way. And my my most hilarious favorite there's these two guys that have these environmental hazmat suits in the oh, back God, of their van, yeah. and it it self inflates, and then the suit, a, a balloon suit, picks up an axe. And kills these two yep. guys. Like, <clears throat> what are the rules to this world? Yeah, just okay. You were just killed by a fucking balloon. <laughs> and again, I wish I could like that's eat... that's a level of of like a killer clowns from outer space, dumb. Yeah, but again, and if the movie was moving with more momentum, I could almost recommend it for its stupidity. Like, it's just oh god, you guys, it's so weird and stupid that they did it. Maybe you should watch it, but it just feels like a. Slug. I don't know what it is about the correlation between budget and pace. Yeah. But it... Uh, I, I, can you not afford an editor? It, <laughs> it just seems like a lot of these shoestring budget horror films, so often the pace just drags. It's like they have to get to their 85 minutes or whatever. Yeah. So, whereas where you would typically edit for efficiency, all of a sudden they're like, oh, we, we did our first cut and we're at like 65. We need to find 15 <laughs> minutes here. Yep. And just all of the scenes are then suddenly asked to breathe. Way breathe more. what? There's no oxygen in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we come, once, once the movie's moving that slow, then you start to pay attention to some of the stuff that has been famously problematic for Stephen King in the past. Like I said, there are the characters in the truck stop that are cooperative and helpful, and there are the characters that are completely stupid, counterproductive, and evil, and there yeah. is zero middle ground. So no. you can't... <clears throat> and no reason for it, really, even. Yeah. 
it's not it becomes not credible i think on a staging level i mean obviously low budget um it, the truck circling them, smashing into things, I guess, here and there. It, it doesn't look fake or necessarily cheap at those moments, but mm-hmm. you clearly have to understand that those were the money shots and that the movie was being built around Yes, them. exactly. <laughs> it's like, this is a brand new semi. <laughs> we got one take We on got this. one take on this. And even one of the semis that they blow up quite hilariously shows up again in the third act. <laughs> like this smoking wreckage, a wily e. coyote skeleton yeah. of a truck still tries to chase them down. Uh, it, I think that's the problem with adapting the short story is, again, they're mostly based on premise. Yeah. And you you need to keep that pace up. Otherwise, the audience will have time to think about how actually kind of silly this premise is. <clears throat> it's cool on its face. Don't let them think about it too hard. Yeah. Um, and Go the demolition man route. Yeah. Don't and, let them think about it. Yeah, that's what I say. Speed, 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 yep. speed. At the very end of the movie, and here's killing the big twist at the end, the, the few survivors jump onto a helicopter. And the longer they're not showing who's driving the helicopter, the more you're screaming, There's nobody no pilot. driving the helicopter, yep. you guys. It's... So obvious. It's painfully obvious. Like, and painfully stupid, because if you're jumping into a helicopter, like... The first thing you would do would be like, Go, thank go, you. go! Thank you, thank you, pilot. Yeah, yeah. You have saved my or, life. Yeah, thank you, or, or go, 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 like something. Just and look to your fucking left. They all get into the helicopter. The helicopter takes off. There's even the ones the ones in the backseat didn't even have to look to their left. It's right in front of you. Nothing! They're just too busy, like, celebrating and looking at each other. It's not credible, so no. it doesn't work as a twist. No. And it also doesn't work as a twist is that it hasn't successfully made me care about any of these characters. Not so at all. if they're being driven to their doom, which we have to assume, like, I should maybe feel like I've been dropped off a cliff at the end of this movie. And I'm just so happy to see those credits start to roll. Yeah. It's over! The only, char- the only character I cared about in that entire fucking movie was Timothy Busfield. Yeah. And it was mostly just, did you have gambling debts? Like... Are you okay, buddy? His son, uh, Logan, is played by Brendan Fletcher, who's a Canadian actor who's been just forever. You'll see him in, in millions of things. He's in a couple of the Ginger Snaps movies. He's That's in, where I know him from. God he's damn in it. Freddy vs. Jason. He's in, oh, like, I might know him from that one, too. Yeah. Which character did he play in Freddy vs. Jason? He was kind of the best friend role. He's the only guy that Freddy actually kills in Freddy vs. Oh, Jason. yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Yeah. The guy, the, the guy who's uh, uh, kind of a recovering drug his brother was a recovering drug addict yeah. so but he's always been a good actor and he always see how well notice him in like bit roles in Canadian TV and Canadian yeah. Canadian made movies and even here he's like probably 15 years old right and he's and one of the better performances he's in one the... of the more dependable players that we have yeah. here Timothy <clears throat> Busefield is trying to be his sort of warm hearted charming self but uh, again it's kind of on his face like he knows this is not <clears throat> a good movie yeah I'm getting a paycheck out of this. I got bills to pay. Yes. And unless, I got alimony. Unless <laughs> he grew up in the prairies in Canada, I can get how hanging out in the middle of the prairies of Canada would probably lose its charm after the first week of your seven-week shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it sucks for me. I, again, I, I want to I see and more anthologies, generally speaking, but that's a lot of the time with Stephen King and his... Short story adaptations. I'm just like. See, there's one for one of the, 
one of the streaming services or <clears throat> or cable yeah. networks to pick up. Like, he literally has hundreds of unadapted hundreds, short stories. Yes, do him a short stories for God's sake. And they've been adapted reasonably interestingly. Do you remember? In, and a lot of them in short form, yeah. like uh, the the short of the raft. It was in Creepshow too. Yeah, it was it great. Well. Yeah, there there was this old TV show in the eighties called Monsters. Vaguely remember, uh, and it was an eve. It was sort of like Tales from the Dark Side, super no budget anthology horror. But they did an adaptation of The Moving Finger. Oh, nice! And it starred oh shit! Now I'm gonna kill myself. I don't remember his name. The skinny lanky dude from Manhunter who played the uh, Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan, yes. Tom Noonan. It's <clears throat> there's an adaptation of the The Moving Finger, which is like this guy lives in an apartment complex. And he goes into the bathroom one day and a finger yeah. starts poking out of the drain. And he's, you know, at first pretty convinced he's going crazy and his wife doesn't see it. And it's it's a weird thing. And you can watch it on YouTube, this 22-minute adaptation of it. And if you tried to make that any longer than what it was, it would just stop being what it was. Yeah. It, like, how you can't milk 90 minutes out of the moving finger. Yeah, and, and, and again, it's just it's a lunatic premise. There's no story here. It's just... Just deal with it. Yep. It happens because it happens. Same thing with trucks. So, bring us that. Because, again, it's a solid premise. Even, even Maximum Overdrive, as fucking coke and alcohol-fueled as it was, <laughs> at least with its attempt to make it more funny and interesting by having the appliances attack people and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it kind of went the 80s action, overblown action route. It comes closer to the so-bad-it's-good territory. Yes, definitely. But this one is just... just, just lays no. there. It just lays yeah, there. Yeah, it, it's... it's... It's a slog, that's for sure. It just... Yeah, it, it, you said it the best. It just lays there. <laughs> you know, it's Clayman. What the hell? Oh, my God. You killed her. This is not a trial. This is a preliminary inquest in all cases of death as suspicious in nature. Someone to see you here. I told you I don't want no lawyer. Dolores, it's your daughter. When was your last visit? Fifteen years ago. I didn't kill her. I'm not murder that witch anymore, and I'm wearing a diamond tiara. We need a piece of your hair, Miss Clavin. Take what you want. I ain't doing any beauty pageants this week. That is the last guy in the world you want to make an enemy out of. Motive money. I ain't making one. I'm keeping one. Eyewitness testimony. What is that supposed to mean? A documented history of threats. You're going to tell me you don't remember him? Selena. We met before, Miss St. John. Leave me alone! I was the investigator when your father died. No! Maybe we should finish what was started 20 years ago. You, honest to God, don't remember, do you? You're an old hand at this, aren't you, Miss Clayman? People do have a tendency to take some bad falls when you're around. So Taylor Hackford got the job to adapt Dolores Claiborne into a feature film. Yeah, very solid guy. Um, it's interesting because for me, this movie bought him some credibility. He had to have this cult status with this movie Blood In, Blood Out. 
A lot oh of, yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of the macho kids in high school really liked that movie, and I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I must have saw it on the wrong day. I didn't see what was so great about it, and whatever credibility that he gained making Dolores Claiborne, he immediately spent by following it up with The Devil's Advocate, well, one of the more unintentionally hilarious thrillers ever made. Oh. <clears throat> I, I, I laugh every time. <laughs> I, it, I've only seen it three times, I think, but yeah, every time it's just like, oh my god, the ending. Wow, you guys. But right here, it's funny, you would never guess that the same director that made something as off the rails and crazy and over the top and, you know, out there as the devil's advocate could do such a controlled, composed, compelling thriller. Quiet, compelling, yeah. uh, it's, It's very, we were talking about the terrible pacing of trucks. Right. It's got the same pacing as Dolores Claiborne, but... This is not trucks. <laughs> it's riveting. Now you got a really game cast here. That definitely helps. Je- yeah. Anytime you see Jennifer Jason Lee's name on it, you're probably dealing with a stellar script because yeah. she is really. It seems like she's really, really picky about what she attaches her name to. Yeah. And they really lean into this sort of pathetic fallacy. It's a very gray drab, rainy season that we're encountering, reflecting the headspace of all of our characters. It's not a familiar story, so I'll spend a little bit more time on plot here. Jennifer Jason Lee returns to her uh, island, main island home, uh, to see to her mother, who is now, for the second time in her life, been accused of murder. Mm-hmm. She was found leading over the dying body of her woman she was taking care of, with a heavy wooden rolling pin raised <laughs> over her head, <laughs> it really looked bad. And and, uh, and also, it's it's your typical main small town that Stephen King writes. So of course, there's always the lingering rumor. Yeah, everyone. The knows. lingering rumor mill is like, yeah, she's the one that got away with murder. Her husband disappeared in the past. Everyone pretty much knows that she did it, but there's no proof. Yeah. And lo and behold, here she comes up again, and there's a body at her feet. And what does this all mean? Now, it becomes clear that the relationship between Dolores and her daughter has been broken, that there's a lot of tension between them, and that it has something to do with her uh, abusive father, who we see only in flashbacks, played by uh, David Strathairn. Playing against his typical type, I usually find Strathairn plays likable characters. Yeah. He's usually the warmer, sort of steady, controlled, exposition-giving character, you know. But it was nice to see casting against type he did a that. good job of that switch that I've actually seen in Alcoholics, where they go from pleasant, warm, talking to you like nothing, to just a sudden, outright awful act. Yep, just surly and for no reason. And that act going unacknowledged by them. They, they, one, he memorably smashes her across her lower back with a, a chunk of log, I think. Yeah, two by... No, no, it's uh, cordwood. Cordwood, yeah. yeah. And bit, almost cripples her on the spot and then just goes back to eating his food. Like, like yeah, that was... Like it was nothing. Nothing. <clears throat> it was a really cool character detail. And it's also one of those Stephen King characters who is just evil. Yeah. But the actor gave it enough dimension for me to believe that what we were seeing was him at his worst, that there was actually a real person there. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people have trouble choking that down. Yeah, well, then a lot of people don't have actual experience with... Real sons of bitches. With like. real sons of bitches and, and drunks. Like, I've, 
I've worked in a bar for how many years, and I've seen it happen. Yeah, they're joking around and blah blah blah, and somebody says something about nothing. Yeah, you know, like the Matrix Reloaded sucked. Yeah. All of a sudden, a beer glass is just shattering into their face. Yeah, <laughs> and just out of goddamn nowhere. Yeah. Um. It, this is also one of the uh, one of the most faithful. Um adaptations of a, of a Stephen King novel yeah like it's almost slavish like it and and the, there we were talking about how sometimes Stephen King's dialogue doesn't come off right the dialogue is pretty much bang on to the book but there it's coming out of the mouths of Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee right they make it work I also think that like that Jennifer Jason Lee becomes more main the longer she's there. Yeah, I did notice that. <laughs> I thought that was the kind accent of... like steadily gets, and I mean I'm sure they shot this out of sequence, so she had to put a flow chart up. How thick is my accent <laughs> yeah. today? The deeper she but gets she's, mixed in, but she's she's the kind of like meticulous actress that would actually fucking do that. Yeah. Um, what I like about the book and the movie too is that, with the exception of a couple of the characters, the husband definitely being one. Uh, the asshole Stephen King characters are allowed more dimension. Yeah. It's almost like in his thriller drama universe books that he, he he's more willing to humanize people than he will. He'll he'll take the short run in in it with the bullies or whatever like this. But uh, Christopher Plummer plays this uh, investigator and lawyer who failed to convict. Dolores Claiborne yeah. the first time around. And he's around. Kind of got a chip on his shoulder. And he is biased. He has a chip on his shoulder and he can't admit to himself that it's yep. that it's not personal, but it's personal. But it's personal because it was the one that got away. Yeah. And you see him fighting with it. And in any other Stephen King book, he would just be like killing people to, to, to like frame Dolores. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's not willing to do that. He, In some level he knows all he has is a circumstantial case. But he figures if he can try her quickly in this community who already thinks she's fucking crazy, he will get some sort of redemption. Well, and, and this book is notable, too, because at the time when this he wrote this, uh, he had very, very, very few books that didn't have some supernatural element to them. Yeah. And, and this is all quiet, psychological... Uh, it also I found out because um, I, as I said, I reread everything that we were going to review today. I started reading Dolores Claiborne, which I've owned forever, forever, and I was looking at the well, it's, I, the spine is in terrific shape and all this. I started reading it. I had zero recollection of anything happening. Usually, if it's something I've read years ago, I'll have some recollection. Maybe I don't remember how it ends, yeah. or I don't remember whole parts of it. But, but it comes actually, back to you as you read it. Less. I actually think, after reading that, I don't think I read it. Right. It's the only Stephen King book that I own that I haven't read. Right. Up until I, <clears throat> I read it, uh, in preparation for this, which was kind of novel. Yeah. <laughs> um. The other thing that really was a takeaway for me, at least rereading it and then watching it, um, Stephen King came this close to writing the perfect Canadian novel. Yeah. Just this... I'm holding my fingers very, very close <laughs> together. Because it's got the 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 daddy issues and the, the long, lingering looks out onto the water... And the bleak landscape. Yeah, the bleak landscape and the rocky shore and the gray skies, and and the 
the hint that there might have been some some foul play or or some dastardly doings in the past that no one's willing to talk about in the small town community. The way the way he fucked up and did not make the perfect Canadian novel, he has a plot. Yeah, right. It and goes somewhere. It goes somewhere, <laughs> and that's where he uh, fucked it up. Yeah, whoops. sorry. <laughs> the stars and stripes are showing on your sleeve, there, Stevie. Well, speaking as a Canadian filmmaker, ouch! Right in the feelings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the other character who is interesting and complex, the woman that she's accused of murdering. I can't remember the name of the character, but uh, she's this miserable old woman, and she bonds with Dolores yeah, she, eventually. She, she's really terrible, but at the same time, there's a connection, and they did a very good job of portraying that she, she thinks of her as, as uh, less than her. Yeah, She's a, 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 an underling, uh, not worth thought, but at the same time, utterly dependent on her, and scared when she's not around like she has those nightmares and and uh, and almost becomes a child she enjoys tormenting Dolores and is terrible to Dolores for a very very long time yeah but there's a turning point when Dolores finds out that her husband has stolen the college money that she's been doing all of this work and putting up <clears> with all of this years of abuse to do yep. it's the only fucking reason she's been doing all of this and it's now been taken from her and she's still there fucking working for this bitch there's a turn in the relationship and we understand both why that woman was such an old crone and yeah. why she went from treating Dolores like a piece of garbage to Dolores being the only person in the world who she genuinely loves. They're, they're two very broken people that don't really like each other at all. But they need each other and grow to love each other. Because they're the only human connection either one of them has. They also share they, like, in the, common... The old lady's connection to her family, like her kids don't give a shit about her. Uh, and and after Dolores kills her husband, they have a mutual secret because yes. we find out she <clears throat> had done that to her husband, who was abusive. Which is why that cycle of abuse, like her husband was shitty to her. Now without the husband, she was really shitty to her staff. Like she became him on some level. Yeah, and she realized that and started to hate herself. And uh, again, the all the dimension that we never get out of your typical Stephen King villain. It was very good at portraying the various levels of cycles of violence. Yeah. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that Dolores becomes a, a, a child beater. No. And, like, beats her kid. But there's always... There's always going to be some violence in your life. Yeah. Just because that's that shit scars you. And we'll talk about it more when we talk about uh, 112263, but the whole theme of you can't escape your past. You'll spend your life trying to. Yep. But you cannot. Jennifer Jason Lee. It's is, taken a little more literally in yeah, eleven twenty two yeah. sixty three, but but it's more explicitly explored there. But Jennifer Jason Lee is terrible to her mother and seems to have a lot of animosity to her mother, and even sort of blames her mother for her dad disappearing. And on some level, not only does she know that her mother killed her dad, but she knows her mother killed her dad because her dad molested her, and yeah. she has to be reawakened to this. But. She's become the abuser now. She is terrible to her mom. Yes. She's terrible <clears throat> to her mom. She doesn't want her mom to go to jail, but that's about the extent. Yeah, other than that, like, as soon as this is all blown over... I am the fuck out, out of, of here. Yep. Right? I am not spending one more minute around you, you crazy bitch. Um, there is one moment of Supernatural that I think is interesting to mention. It's 
not in the movie. I think it might be hinted at in the movie that there's something going on with with uh, Dolores, but this movie or this book is a companion. Yeah, piece. there's supposedly kind of a psychic connection. Correct. Uh, it's a to companion Rose. piece to, to Gerald's game or Gerald's game. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm thinking Rose uh, Matter, but in uh, the eclipse in Rose Matter too. Yes, yeah, it actually is. I think because uh, it, it's been a while it, since I read that one. While she is killing her husband, everybody is looking at this eclipse that's going on. And uh, in the story of Gerald's game, we you know the main character. That's Bastard. a slow moving uh, uh, distraction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but everybody's eyes are up. Is yep. the idea um, in Gerald's game? This this woman is molested by her father during the day of the eclipse. Yeah. And these two women have this psychic connection. They see each other from across two different novels very briefly. And uh, of all, all of. Stephen King's sort of interconnection where he'll recycle characters or places in his novels. Mm -hmm. That's one of my really favorite ones. Yeah, because it was just, it was kind of out of nowhere, but... uh... It's his most successfully feminist novel. I haven't finished Sleeping Beauties, so maybe I'll end up, but I think it's the most successfully feminist novel. I think he tried to do it with Rose Matter, but I don't think he was as successful. No, I don't think so either. Uh, but Gerald's game and uh, Dolores Claiborne are, are really interesting in that the, he's got two greatly, very fully explode, explored psychologically female characters. It, it's also uh, one of his most like deeply rooted in psychology, like in just character. This yeah. was this book is all about character. Yeah. There's some there's things happening, yeah, but mostly it's all about the characters reactions to the like he'd never delved this deeply into characters before yeah and again the themes of of not being able to escape your past the themes of being forced to confront things by by circumstance like nothing else would have made you yeah, this, this was his first and most human novel yeah it was just about the human condition in terrible circumstances and it wasn't extreme circumstances necessarily yeah because this shit sadly is I just like the way it holds hands. The, the Gerald's game in this one holds hands. Similar like the, the Desperation and the Regulators. He did a similar thing. Yeah. Those two novels are separate novels, but they hold hands. Uh, I think it's uh, those very different pulpy horror environment there, but similar but different. Uh, well, yeah. I prefer this one. Desperation because, was kind of the, the explode the town model. Yeah. And Regulators was explode the town, but... With rocket launchers, yeah, <laughs> and, and a, a remix is sort of what it. Yeah, it was like. a, it was a, a pulp action. Yeah. Uh, uh, take on the on the same thing. The performances are very strong, and unlike most. Which, by the way, I would love to do an episode of this where we do uh, desperation, because that is one of my favorite Stephen King books, and that was one of the biggest pieces of shit <laughs> ever ever produced. It makes under, The Shining look good under King's name. Oh my god. It makes the mangler look good. <laughs> Those are strong words. Strong words. Um, generally speaking, though, it's, like you say, an incredibly faithful adaptation to the novel. The cast is univer- uniformly strong. There's really... The, the cast is fucking stellar. Yeah, Christopher Plummer. The cast is A-list to the, to the roof. Yeah. Uh, Derek Bogosian as uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's creepy boss. Like, there's... All over the film, there's interesting faces that will show up. And, and just not even big parts... It's like, yeah, Bogosian has how many lines? No, oh, ten. Yeah. Yeah. And still, he <laughs> nails yeah, it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, it's it's worth your time. I guess the only thing that I would say against it, and it's very minor. Well, it's, it was nominated for Oscars, was it not? Uh, it did okay. It's 
almost two and a half hours long and it is a moody sit and it's not a horror movie if you're looking to watch a horror movie i don't think dolores claiborne it's not a horror story but it's a really really well done thriller it's a horror story in that people are horrible to each other yeah people that are supposed to love each other and have family familial ties or even just friendship ties or neighborly ties are routinely horrible to each other. But this is like a psychological horror drama. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. I'm just saying know what you're getting into. Yeah. I'm out of town, am I right? You shouldn't be here. If I had my life I don't know whether Oswald was the man who did it. You'll figure out the rest when you get there. You see, the past doesn't want to be changed. When you're close to changing something, you feel it pushed back. Last thing you can say about killing a man is that it's brave. Mr. Amberson, this is Miss Dunhill. She's starting over. When rules are broken, there's a price. Price must be paid. Things right. CIA's pulling the trigger. What do we do now? Then you kill Oswald. Everything you say is a lie. So keeping along right with the themes anyway, it's a very different story, but this whole idea of your past and how you have to deal with it and you being obsessed with if you could do something different. Now let's get it literal. Yeah. Uh, again, this this uh, owner of a cafe really believes that the world changed for the worse with the death of JFK. And when he finds this portal in the back room it of is, his restaurant. It is walking. Yeah. That will take you back in time. Uh, he sees an opportunity. To, to a random date in June of 1960. Yeah. Uh he sees an opportunity to maybe fix that. Or do uh, I? It's what? interesting because that's not our main character. <laughs> that <Nope>. character. <clears throat> our main character meets him when he realizes that he's not going to be able to complete his quest. And he basically inherits this quest. Yeah, he, he, he gets diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. I, uh, I was a big fan of the book, remain a big fan of the book, but I will... Oh, it's it, one of my favorites. Yeah. I will admit that I was very skeptical. And part of my skepticism was not not just that they were doing it for TV, but that James Franco was going to center this movie. Yeah, that that had me too. As soon as you... I hadn't seen it until you handed me the, the box set, and I looked at it, oh, okay, fine, oh, J.J. Abrams, well... J.J. Mm. Abrams is a wild card. It doesn't yeah. guarantee quality, but it... It guarantees a certain level of production, anyway. Yeah, it guarantees a budget, that's yeah. for sure. Um, and then it's uh, starring James Franco. Oh. <laughs> well, and I, I don't want to be mean to Franco, either. Like, the thing I just about never him, warmed up to him. He's incredibly in inconsistent. Like, yes. He is terrible in the Spider-Man movies. He is amazing in 127 hours, right? Yeah. And and <clears throat> it doesn't seem like the same dude. It just it doesn't. And a lot of the times, even just, in his comedies, uh, like he's really good in this one. And this one, it's like, what the fuck yeah. were you thinking? Sometimes it seems like he gives a shit. And like, sometimes this is not. this is the end. He was very funny in. But I was invested. Or because, Pineapple Express, very funny in. And yeah. then there was that what 
what that that one that was set in medieval times. Oh God! Uh, that that your highness. That Ugh. that came off like a a, a later year. Zucker Abrams Zucker production. It was probably like, one of those movies that was a real riot to make when but, they were stoned. Yeah, yeah, but terrible to watch. But again, I was just because I I have a real affection for the source material. I was like, really, is he going to be able to carry this? And my short answer is yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, I was watching it, and then I I came out of it for some reason. I came out of the moment. And was like, I'm really enjoying a James Franco thing. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> He seems to really fit well in the 1960s era with the hats and the... And the t- I think it's because he, he kind of has a passing resemblance to James Dean. Yeah. He's got the... It looks like that weird gumshoe vibe to him. Yeah. And he does have a puzzle that he needs to solve. And, and he does puzzled really well. He yeah. has a good puzzled face. He constantly... I know he's, he's supposedly a very, very intelligent guy, but he looks like he can't figure shit out all the time. <laughs> he's a school teacher and uh, he knows a lot about history. Yep. So, the, it's a it's a, a a doorstop of a book. It's a it's a really big book, and uh, yeah, it's seven hundred and eighty some odd. You're not going to be able to fit it into a movie. I'm glad they made it into an eight episode miniseries and a very very faithful one yeah. too. Very faithful, and it doesn't feel too long, nor does it feel too short. Like I think ten episodes might have been too long, <clears throat> but I don't think six would have done it. Right? They also. Um... Follow the new trend of not keeping to an hour-long episode. What they need for that episode. They, they, it, it varies. Sometimes it's an hour and three. Sometimes it's 48. Yeah. They find the right time to end it. Like, this is the right story beat to start rolling credits and just go with that. And again, it's helped in that they are not structuring it around commercial breaks. Mm. Right? So you don't have Boy, insert howdy, commercial yep. here and, and stuff like that. And that's all taken away. And f- to the movie's credit. And the book and the movie are very smart in that we have the Chris Cooper character who helps us to establish the rules of the time travel. Yeah. You get it, you'll be gone for two minutes. You can stay there as long as you want, but when you're back, two minutes has passed. But you've and aged. It, you have aged, yeah. But anything you've changed will stay unless you use the portal again. Every and then time, it resets. Every time you use the portal, it resets. It's a little bit complicated. So they have to set up that. They have to set up these two characters and the two different timelines. And it's like I was saying, it's like a Groundhog's Day, only you get to choose when that Groundhog's when Day ends. When it ends, ends. yep. Um, so that's a lot of work. Unless, except in, like in Groundhog, in Groundhog Day, if you die, you're fucking you're dead. You're fucking dead, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there's your journey there, ends. There's real consequences, that's true. But he, he really spends a lot of time meticulously testing out what the rules are. Yeah. Uh, he tries little things to change uh, One of his students' the family future. was killed by the, the father. Uh, yeah, the, 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 father, the father went nuts with an axe and... Yeah, or a hammer or something. Hammer, yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, but, and so he goes and he stops it, and then when he goes back, he sees that it's changed, except for his beloved student ended up dying in Vietnam because just the butterfly effect, yeah. right? Just things went down differently. So it does work, uh, but now he's got to figure out, well, is he going to take on this quest? And, of and, course, and he does go back to that uh, family and ends up saving the youngest daughter, even though she's grievously injured. Yeah. <coughs> she ends up paralyzed, but she has a good full life. Right. So it's like, okay, this one I'm keeping. Next time I go back, I'm keeping this because she has a good full life. She's like an award-winning writer or yeah. something like that, or uh, uh, academic. I don't remember. Uh, but there's certain things he changes while he's testing things out. He's like, I have to keep this. So... 
he now has this to-do list every time he returns to 1960. Yeah. Where I have, first of all, I have to do this, 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 this. And he's also really concerned about making sure 100% that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter. Right. That none of the conspiracy theories were correct. That it, So he, he becomes obsessively, uh, almost stalkerish. Yeah. Uh, like it, like you said, a gumshoe, like a, <clears throat> a private eye, following his movements as they're recorded by history. So he just randomly kind of stalks him. Stalks him, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, he, and he meets his he meets his wife, and you know, like he moves in. He's just the downstairs neighbor, yeah. so he can keep a closer eye on Oswald's movements and see some of these shady Cuban and Russian characters coming back and forth. coming back and forth. And they handle Oswald really well. I like that actor. Um, and all of these balls are in the air, and I think it's really helped by the episodic nature that we can spend an episode on the family and the, and the Hammer murders, right? And we can spend an episode on, on the Back to the Future book that has all of the sports scores. So yeah, can, yeah, yeah. He can bankroll his adventures. <laughs> and we can spend an episode where he has to kill time, he has to kill years to get to the date of the... Uh, so he, or, or he, where he, he's splitting his time between uh, the school that he eventually gets a job at. at and this budding romance with one of the... Which complicates things. Complicates right? things greatly. Because <laughs> she's literally from another time. And we have all of these problems, and that's one of the reasons it's so great that they don't really get bogged down on, did this man act alone? Were there other elements to the conspiracy? <laughs> because with all of these balls in the air already, plus the, this idea of... Time itself, or fate itself, trying to course fights, correct. Yeah, time fights back. The more you try to change it, the bigger the change you want to make, the more, the more it fights back. back. And uh, there was so much going on that if we had this extra layer where it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald alone, I, I do think that would have probably been oh, the one that step too That would have gutted it, yeah. <laughs> so congrats to both the movie and the book for not taking the bait of the conspiracy because that would have been real easy to do. Well, and I, I can see that because Stephen King has said many times on his Twitter feed that he thinks conspiracy theories are dumb Yeah, and conspiracy theorists are the fuel that feeds the dumb. Right. But he doesn't even get into it. It's just unaddressed. Nope. Yeah. Our character, other, other than his, his doubts. Our character wants to make sure... He's going to... 100% if, sure if he's that... he's going to kill Lee Harvey Oswald, he wants to know that he's killing a dude who was going to do this to the world. Yeah. And again, we're going to get into spoiler territories because uh, after, I think this is his third cycle through, and all yeah, of Yeah, that, that's years, one thing in, in the series, they, they uh, he only cycles through once. Right. For brevity's sake. Right. But in the book, he goes through several times. So iterations. he ages a good 10 years yeah. in, the, in the process of... Because of, uh, it's 1960, he's dropped off in... And it's not till sixty three, till you know November of sixty three that he actually stops the assassination. Stops the assassination at the cost of his beloved's life. Yeah, and then he comes back, and again that terrible psychological realization that in this world only two minutes has gone by. Oh, and uh, some nuclear bombs have gone off, and Maine is now part of Canada. And, uh, like, the world is this colossal shit pile. And now you have no choice. (laughs) Like, you have to go back and not... Not do anything. (laughs) Right? Let him die. And then after that... But but it, it, it... It's it's a decent character arc. He lost his his quest, his mission. Yeah. But at the same time, he can actually go back in time and live 
his life out in the 60s and 70s and fall in love with this woman that he fell in love with and yeah. knew he had to he was going to lose so he actually he gets a a a, a, a success in a personal quest that he didn't even realize he was on right he he fails at his main story quest but as a as a human being as a character he ends up finding a better resolution in the end of the day, though, it still feels like a tragedy to me, this whole story. I mean, uh, our character lives to fight another day. He's lost years of his life and <clears> hasn't really accomplished... It's a bittersweet. Yeah. Um, and the, I the portal the, the, is not going to the... be accessible anymore. It seems to have blown itself out for use. Like, he can't even use it just to make himself wealthy afterwards, yeah. right? He's He's basically just lost years of his life and learned the lesson that you can't do anything about your past. Yeah, it's and, <laughs> it's almost it's almost Don Quixote-ish. Right? You he it's a long journey to get to where you started. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean at the very end of the book is is he goes back yet again, lives out the however many years till he gets the job at the school. Right. Gets the job at the school again and it ends with him meeting the woman he's in love with again. Yeah. And that's how it ends. So he's well, obviously. Does it? I thought in, in the uh, book, doesn't he meet her when she's like eighty, and he asks her to dance? Oh, with him? I'm sorry, I forgot the afterward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes to the reunion. Yeah, he he basically he says goodbye to her. He goes back to see her one more time. I basically is what it is. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm thinking of. He visits her, and she's this eighty year old woman, and she has she's this, it's her retirement party. She's had this great life. And he asked her if he could have this dance now. And as far as she knows, she's never seen him before. And she has this strong feeling of deja vu. And she dances with this handsome young man and is very charmed by him. But she doesn't understand the full context that we do and that he does how much that more it means to him than it does to her. Yeah. Uh, And it's bittersweet. Yeah, it's kind of a bittersweet way to end. And again, you just... Sometimes the past is a bitter fruit and you have to just... Suck it up. It. Yep. Uh, it, it makes me think in a way of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. The idea of like, if you could erase this terrible relationship that caused you this depression, yeah, you wouldn't be sad anymore, but you would have learned nothing. Yeah. How different is this story from your average Stephen King fair? I mean, other than the Hammer murders, this is <clears throat> this is I don't know sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, it's romance <clears throat> adventure all in one, very thrilling. And I gotta say, for a book the size it is, it really moves. Uh, yeah, it it does. It doesn't have any laggy points. He did on tried it. a similar thing, I think, with Under the Dome, but was I think way more successful with J, uh, the JFK book. Is that he wanted the book to be at pedal to the metal the whole time we're mm-hmm. moving and it's really hard for a book as sprawling as that and well, with that, this many rules that in buggers it over that a thousand pages yeah and uh i don't think he, i don't think he pulled it off under the dome personally people we can debate that another day but i think he, yeah, he pulled it off agree with you on that one yeah i think he pulled it off here both in the book and to my surprise and delight in this miniseries yeah again <clears throat> like i said i was a little bit leery of james franco like i thought like this guy has such a puzzle to solve and so much going on. It's such an interesting premise. If he's just this stone-faced shrug, whatever, I'm James Franco getting a paycheck, it will kill it. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled to say but that he, 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 seemed, came, he in showed his, up. In his performance, yeah, he seemed inve- really invested in it. Uh, and how could you not be? I mean, it's such a great, juicy part. Like, yeah. If you're not going to get excited about this role, what fucking role will you get it, excited it, it about? And really, and again, uh, you know, how... how 
much I love faithfulness to the to the source. Uh, to the source material, this one, the only real big changes were he didn't take multiple trips over right. the span of the three years. He just did the one, right? Uh, and also Bill, right? Because Bill in the book is in like two chapters, and he dies very well. He takes his own life, yeah. Very he, suddenly, he basically helps him <clears throat> helps him out on the uh, the hammer murder case, yeah. And then you never see him again. Yeah. Then in it's this officially one, his problem. <laughs> yeah. In this one, he hangs around mostly just because that's a necessity of adapting a book where he's by himself most of the time. He needs someone to give the information. He needs someone to talk to. Yeah. He needs, there needs to be some dialogue bouncing around, otherwise it's going to make for a really boring watch. The really weird stuff is when we get into the forces of fate, too. The... The homeless mm. dude that he sees every time he gets there is slightly the, different, or the one guy and that seems to have because uh, he I, maybe he's schizophrenic, uh, but he seems to have at least some clue. He's plugged into this other world somehow. Somehow, and he keeps getting worse every time he jumps back. And there's a few times where he seems to meet people who look him in the eye and they're saying, "Don't do this," yeah. right? And there's <clears throat> yeah, something. Like, we don't know what the what's behind I know that. you, yeah, and yeah. I don't know something's yeah. wrong about You're, you. You should not be here. And yeah. uh, there's something really creepy about that. It, it reminds me we were talking in between the things about the Dark Tower, the Taheen, these creatures in the Stephen King world that look like people but aren't. Yeah, they have this whole shit going on behind the scenes that we don't know. And if you pay close enough attention to them, maybe you'll notice. But they 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 pass. That's what this force of time kind of feels like in this movie. Like when it manifests, there's a bigger world there. And uh, part of me hopes that maybe Stephen King he doesn't have to make a sequel to this specific story, but he can but maybe delve into that idea a little yeah, bit more. Because it's interesting that somebody is writing the book. Yeah, and maybe it's him. And maybe able he to... he has been a character in one of his own books. And maybe if he needs to go back and make a change, yeah, somebody some, somebody is writing. <laughs> The, the course of history and doesn't appreciate the editing process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's gonna gonna erase any mistakes, it will be them. Yeah, whoever they are. Anyway, it's fascinating. So yeah, it would be it. it would be great if he'd uh, revisit that idea. Yeah, at some point. I mean, <clears throat> he might. It's uh, his newest book just came out, so it's gonna be what five six months until the yeah, next at least. one. Well, he's retired, so, what, only two, three books a year now? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> he's obviously getting lazy in his old age, because this last one, it took, what, six months for it to come out? And it's not even 650 pages, it's like 647. It took me seven fucking... years to make a movie. You know how many fucking books this <laughs> asshole could write in seven years? I don't even want to think about it. His, the, uh, one thing I noticed, the uh, also written by Stephen King bit on the... on. Uh, my copy of uh, The Outsider, his newest book. Yeah. It's five pages long. <laughs> it's longer than anything I've ever written. <laughs> God damn it, Steve. <sighs> Alas, please check out 112263. It way overperformed for me. Yes. I was ready to be disappointed, oh, to be it, honest. I was blown away. I know violent men. I deal with them day in and day out. There doesn't seem to be any real violence in him. Until he kills a couple of little girls. John Coffey is a murderer. I don't think he did it at all. Take my hand, both. You see for yourself. You're talking about a miracle. I do not see God putting a gift like that in the hands of a man who would kill a child. 
I dreamed of you. We found each other in the dark. Like you dropped out of the sky. Miracles are funny things. You never know when they're going to happen. And when they happen in a place like this, that's the most unbelievable miracle of all. This is the story of a miracle. That happened here, where I work. On the Green Mile. Well, you and I have talked about Frank Darabont and Stephen King in the past. We reviewed The Mist together. Oh, have we? Quite favorably, as I recall, considering what a bitter pill that fucking movie was. Uh, So once again, we have Frank Darabont returning not just to Stephen King, but another prison-themed Stephen King. And another bitter pill, too. Well, I mean... Frank Darabont does not care for sunshine and (laughs) rainbow endings. This is a more magical fantasy sort of realm than it is sort of hard horror. And I think at its heart, Shawshank Redemption is a movie about hope, right? As we talked about. Yes. And The Mist is a movie about despair. I think this is the movie that kind of falls in between those two it's, sort of posts. Uh, yeah, it's that kind of that hope can turn into despair and despair can turn into hope. Right. Because both things happen to major characters in this. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting, like I said, this was the serial novel that he wrote and uh, he was sort of making it up as he went along a and chapter that, at a time. That's the first time I read it. I bought the first one off the... Yeah, I waited for they collected it. I, I, I bought, bought it off the rack at a Mac store. <laughs> nice. Uh, <clears throat> and he actually, in the foreword of the anthologized version, the foreword, he apologizes to the reader for waste, possibly wasting their money because <laughs> he said in no... I don't Unc- know where this goes. In no uncertain terms, I have no idea where this is going. Yeah. This is an experiment. Thank you for paying your hard-earned money and indulging me. Yeah. The Green Mile of the title is what they refer to as the the death ward of it's, this person. Yeah, it's, the, it's referring to the green linoleum on in the hallway at death row. They have to walk the Green Mile to get to the chair to be, yep. get, get their lights put out. Um, and... The movie starts off with this William Coffey character, another unfortunate uh, John Coffey. John Coffey, thank you. Jesus Christ, is it? No, it's uh, yeah, John that that was the most unfortunate thing about the entire <laughs> book. The entire story is uh, you really went with JC. We have our second magical Negro character of this discussion tonight. Yeah, uh, uh, and again, that is a trope that he does go back to. He's good at. He's it, not the only one. It is a trope. <clears throat> it is a trope. And, uh, yeah, he's found with these two dead girls in his hands, screaming. Wailing and crying. I, I tried, I tried, but I couldn't help it. I tried, but I couldn't help it. He repeats again and again. So, yeah, we can't kill this Until guy. they beat him unconscious. Yeah, they can't kill this son of a bitch soon enough. We jump ship from that really brutal setup to basically a, a long portion of the book and the movie where we get to know the guards on the Green Mile and yep. how they have a really tight relationship, respectful relationship with each other. And with their prisoners, the mentality being these guys are winding up the clock on their lives, so we need to keep them calm. Yeah. And unfortunately, this new recruit. If you you treat me with respect, I treat you with respect. Yeah. That's actually the mentality still used in corrections today. There's more latitude because it works. More latitude and more of a relationship between the guards and the prisoners here than there you would typically see. And, and you get to see the 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 
prisoners more fleshed out as characters because of that. Yeah. Because they'll actually, they actually feel free to open up to these guys who might be their last friend. Yeah. They're not friends, but, but they, in their desperation... They certainly don't need an enemy. At this yeah, point. at, at their, this last hurrah of their life, this is as close to a new friend as you're ever going to yeah. get. Even on days when, you know, someone's not getting uh, electrocuted or they're, we're down to the single digits before somebody's electrocuted, the whole day feels like they're walking on a, on, a, on a tight wire. They have to be very quiet and calm and cautious. And this new guard that's forced upon them, Percy... <coughs> oh, fucking Percy. ...fucks up the works. Now, here we go with your quintessential... He's, he's your Mr. Cooper for this. Yeah, quintessential, there's nothing redeemable, likable... And after a point, even believable about Percy as a character, <clears throat> he is the worst Stephen King villain who's yep. just shitty in every action, thought, and motion to a point that if to, it wasn't, to a point that the only reason he wants to he kind of blackmails Paul into putting him out front for an execution, yeah. so that he's the guy that orders the the uh, the he switch to, to make the call. He wants to because make, he wants to see a man die. Yeah. That's just it. He wants to see a man. That's how irredeemably assholeish this guy is. He is, is so irredeemably assholeish that the character that Sam Rockwell play, who's a frothing, murdering, rapist lunatic, just a straight up psycho, comes across as both more believable and likable. <laughs> yeah, he actually has a couple of moments where he's like, he, he's broken down a little bit and crying, and it's like, uh, you know what? I like him right now. I, I actually feel something for him. You're on death row. You deserve to be on death row. Uh, you're a mad dog that needs to be put down. But I believe you more than yeah. I believe Percy. Right? If there's a problem with the, the novel or the, the screenplay, it's that character. Here, yeah, and here, here is, if you ever have any confusion about what the, the, the definition of a sociopath and a psychopath is, while Bill is a psychopath... Percy's a sociopath. Yeah. They know how to follow the rules, but they still are just as awful. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, he's one of these born rich. He's got his family uh, protect him from all of his fuck-ups. He's never had to pay And for it's during the mistake. Depression, so yeah. everyone... Like, that's one of the things he can hold over. It's like, my daddy's the governor yeah. or some damn thing. Or he's never a member of the to prison pay for any of his mistakes in his life. And ever. no one wants to fuck, fucking cross this guy. You lose your job, you're not getting another one. It's the depression, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you're lucky to have this job. So, two new people come to the Green Mile. Percy, this piece of shit, and John Coffey. Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Tom played Hanks by, character. Played by the... Michael the, Clark Duncan. The, the lamentably late yeah. Michael Clark Duncan. That was one that hurt. Yeah. Well, when, I, when I got the news on that one, I was like, no, come on. And like, be real, like considering the cast that he was working with, this was he'd been in a couple of movies, but this is the first time he was yep. asked to really play Arm- Armageddon and and Full Nine Yards was that was his whole resume, right? And you're gonna work against Tom fucking Hanks, David Morris, you know Sam Rockwell, right? Yeah, James Cromwell, like, 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 and he's in the deep end of the pool. Graham Greene, yeah, no damn slouch, yeah. So he has to. Hold his weight, and he does. He got nominated for an Oscar. For and he's a—it's a very emotional character. Like he's—he spends the first like half of the movie crying. He is a raw nerve of empathy. He yep. feels. <clears throat> he literally feels. feels all the bad feelings in the world, and it—it's torture yeah. for him. Yeah, which is why he embraces his fate <laughs> eventually. Yeah. I think. Spoiler. Spoilers. <laughs> um, 
His it, fate is he's adopted by a loving family, <laughs> and no. I have so much respect for the adaptation Darabont did here, and that he there were things that he could easily change that would make sense almost to change that he didn't. Paul Edgecombe, the main character, has a brutal bladder infection. It hurts to pee. And directors seem to really have a thing about Tom Hanks. Tom peeing. Hanks peeing. Yeah, I saw I saw a video on all of these. Scenes oh, really? Tom Hanks peeing. It's true. But it's, I was it's, I was watching because I, I watched uh, Joe versus the volcano recently. I was like, there's Tom Hanks peeing again and really enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it happens again and again, apparently. Yeah. Well, uh, then I thought back. Oh yeah, Castaway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but. It would have been such an easy fix for it to be something else. But it's interesting because he has to remain so stoic and so calm. And there's even a scene where he gets a little he's bit running jostled. A, he's running a fever and he's in pain and sweating. And yeah. it's, uh, but what, he's trying not to what show What state it. is this set in? It's one of the hot fucking states. That, yeah. <laughs> I can't and so it's already boiling hot in the 1920s. There's no air conditioning. But like, there's a scene. I think he actually gets kicked in the nuts is what happens. And he gets everybody to leave. And then he basically cups his balls, collapses to the floor, and just lays and just there, lays there in misery, and it's... for a for like almost a minute <laughs> of just him going. It's so humanizing, though. Like, and and, and then my, uh, John Coffey's like, "You all right there, boss?" Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "I can you, help. I can help." And you he, just stay there, John Coffey. <laughs> yeah, but he gets up, he walks over to John Coffey, and John Coffey reaches through the bars grabs him grabs by him by his dick yeah and it's like what the fuck and we find out that john coffee can cure people he heals this infection and by uh, hurting himself and it costs him physically to do it but he does it and then all of a sudden we revisit this picture of him with those girls he finds these two mutilated girls and he's trying to bring them back to but life but they're dead but they're dead I tried to, but, but it, I, couldn't. I couldn't. I tried to help it, but I couldn't. So, Paul all of a sudden likes John Coffey and really believes that and this start, dude starts to this have dude his, is innocent. We have, have his own little him. have his own little investigation to try to see if his his uh, uh, his ideas are are worth the salt. Like if he's right, yeah. And yeah, it turns out. Pretty much the well, spoilers. Yeah, they find out basically Wild Bill, a prisoner that comes in, had made in his, the second act. Yeah, had already done that crime. He was brought in yep. for a different crime, but he was also responsible for yep, those he girls. Killed and raped those two little girls. Yeah, and he's sitting right across the hall. Yeah, and I love. Uh, they could have spent a whole section of the movie with him doing this investigation but I like that he just believes it he has that one conversation a great one scene role with Gary Sinise uh, this dude who uh, gives an impressive speech well William Sadler is not in it very much either but very strong but very strong but he has this one scene where he just gives a speech to justify his racist perspective and it's so well delivered that you almost feel like he successfully justifies his racist perspective. I mean, I I don't side with the character. I just think it was an impressive piece of acting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's all encapsulated in one little scene. One One, like, what, three-minute scene? Yeah. And 
but you see it. You see everything you would possibly need to with that scene, right? So we don't need to spend a lot of time with... And that's one of the only things that got thinned out from the book was the time that Paul spends trying to get coffee off of the Green Mile. We spend more and again, time... <clears throat> I'm, and again, we go back to me uh, talking about faithfulness to the, the source and the necessity to... Streamline. To streamline or adapt just to make it work that's a perfect example of it. Efficient. You, we didn't need it. Once that mm-hmm. scene happened, we get it. Yep. No one is going to be convinced that John, John Coffey is innocent. And we know that now. We don't need to see him talk to five other people. We don't need nope. to like get him an alibi. Nothing. It's fine. <laughs> yep. Just, that's, that's, the, that's the state of things. No one is ever going to believe it. So then we get this, this story. Well, there's two really gr- great stories that happens. There's the... Uh, Failed execute. Well, I guess we couldn't call it a failed execution. No, he was <laughs> dead. <clears throat> he was dead as shit. Uh, Edward Devereaux. Yeah. Um, I want to get the name of that actor. Because um, he was very good. Michael Jeter. Um, he, yeah, he plays Edward Delacroix. Who, Delacroix. Who sorry. really gets into it with Percy. And unfortunately, because Percy then booby traps his uh, execution, he doesn't soak the sponge so the, the current the doesn't go cleanly to his brain. And he cooks very slowly yes and very loudly it's it's an awful scene both in the book and in the movie so we have that sub story which basically culminates in a a a sequence where they simultaneously take their revenge on percy and break john coffee out of the green mile to to get him to to smuggle him out to their warden's wife who's dying of a brain tumor yeah so, John Coffey, it's such a great scene. James Cromwell does such great work in this movie. Because, oh, yeah. like, your best friend shows up to your house in the middle of the night with a shotgun. And, and a convicted, convicted murderer. murderer. Yeah. And says, we need a few minutes with your wife. <laughs> 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 oh, fuck you. He, he, is, he is at the same time, in, in, and it's, it's great to watch just his face. Because he is at the same time enraged baffled conf- like uh, <laughs> what is happening <clears throat> what is yeah. happening <laughs> yeah and uh, and afraid yeah but yeah obviously once his wife is cured he's like well if it costs me the job and the rest of the career whatever we're square <laughs> do yeah. what you need to do you want me to bust John coffee out I will we'll bust do it. John yeah. whatever <laughs> like thank you and of course John coffee does not want to be busted out because life is misery <laughs> to, yep, him. to him and and also it will cause misery to these people who he now considers his friends yeah so he because he <clears throat> he's, willingly to he, it, he's yeah. a very simple man yeah simple-minded uh, and he takes like somebody treats him nice friend yeah you're my friend. And he takes that seriously because his life is so shit otherwise. So it's, if somebody treats him nice, yeah, he appreciates it so much that he, he almost bonds with them, you know? like. Yeah. Well, uh, Delacroix says that when they're about to take him to his execution. Uh, he shakes the guard's hands and says, sure wish I could have met you fellas before all this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sweet. He's being led by these guys to his death, and he's basically thanking them. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> He says uh, something along the lines of, the world's not full of nothing but hurt. Right. I want to feel something other than that. So, of the three Stephen King adaptations that Darabont's done, at least in feature work, he also did that short film of The Woman in the Room. 
but of the features, I would say that I would have to admit the Green Mile's probably my least favorite of the three. Oh, really? Um, <clears throat> that said, I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic movie. I'm a big sentimental goof, though. <laughs> well, one of my problems, I guess, or, or it's not a problem, but I think it's the thing that makes it go down a notch for me, and it's in the book as well. It's the bookending sequence with old Paul in the old age. Yeah, there's where, it, there's where the bittersweet comes back on it, because he's... He's become this ancient man who's going to live for a very long time because of this Not gift. forever, but way a longer long than he wants to. Uh, this <clears throat> gift slash curse that is uh, given to him by John Coffey. So, uh, if you're healed by John Coffey, you have a tendency to live a hell of a lot he's longer. He's imbued you with life. <laughs> yeah. The mouse he saved is still alive. And if that mouse is still alive, Paul's got a lot of years ahead yeah. of him. Right? So, but it's just that... I get that it, maybe in the novel it would work even better that that's the story that's being told. Well, but it really feels to me like that's that death of, of JC, <laughs> the, the death of John Coffey and Tom Hanks quitting his job because he just can't do it anymore yeah. after he did it. That to me was such enough of an ending that that extra 15 minutes at the end where we <clears> see the old man and he sees talking, telling the story to this old lady and he's going to visit the mouse behind the, the retirement home. And then the lady he's been talking to has died. And the movie is three hours and ten yeah, minutes Yeah, literally everybody he's ever known is dead. Yeah. He's buried his children. He's yeah. buried his two wives. He's buried uh, some of his grandchildren at this point. And I get that's the way the book ends and he's being faithful to that. And yes, that green mile can indeed be very, very long. But I yeah, honestly and... feel emotionally, if they'd have rolled credits at the end with him just the narration saying he couldn't be a, 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 a he couldn't work at the Green Mile anymore and he quit and he could even do the ending narration about saying goodbye to everybody how he's the only person left but for me it could be the butt numbing effect of it being three hours and ten minutes long but that last fifteen minutes I could do without <clears throat> it. Yeah, I could see that. I think Stephen King came up with a final line. And he had to get there. And he was married to it. He loved that line. And it's that, we all have our own mile to walk. Yeah. But Lord, (laughs) it's so long. Yeah. Uh, And again, he's fighting with his past, but there's nothing he can do about it. He's yeah. just got to sit in it. It's really, again, we've seen that theme again and again today. At least with the good ones. Yeah. Watch The Green Mile if you haven't. Oh my God, if you haven't. What are you doing? <laughs> town like a dark idol. Ben, the whole town's talking. The house. It's like a curse. So the house is a beacon for evil men. Mark? I can't see. It's so dark. Calm down, boy. I know your name! I admire you. Calm down for a taste. It's Barlow! This town's dying. But we still have a chance. This town's dying because something terrible was born. Something between Hubie Marston and whatever games he played up in that house. That's why Barlow came here. Floyd slit his wrists. 
Floyd. He must have had second thoughts. I hear he tried to stop the bleeding. It's terrible. He drank his own blood. All right, uh, we're going to talk about this 2004 adaptation of Salem's Lot. But before we do... We're going to apologize to everyone involved in the production and <laughs> because uh, we're not giving this one a fair shake. As a matter of fact, it's going to be the first movie ever to not be included in the rank. Right. Because it would be totally unfair. Ribs saw the movie in 2004. The copy I gave him didn't work, so he didn't get to watch all of the movie. I have watched the entirety of the movie yesterday, and he has very recently read the book. So between the two of us, you're going to get an honest shake at, I think, what the movie is. But we're not going to include it in the ranks. We'll just rank the five movies other than Salem's Lot, and uh, we'll just take this one at brass tacks. Uh, Ribs hasn't seen the movie for over 10 years and uh, I saw the movie yesterday I haven't read the novel in probably 5 or 10 years and Ribs very recently read the novel uh, recently about a year and a half ago but... yeah. so <clears throat> we're hoping between us that, uh, <laughs> that we can make up for that so a lesser podcast would have lied to you and just faked her way through it but not rank and review no, no. we're giving you your money's worth on this free podcast <laughs> <clears throat> By the way, support us on Patreon. <laughs> well, what I will say about this version of this TV version of Salem's Lot, it's particularly per, uh, pointless in that there was already a TV version of Salem's Lot. Yes, like <clears throat> if they made another feature film version of Salem's Lot, then I, I might be a little bit more ingratiating to it because no, I and I have uh, I have seen the the uh, the older one, the Toby Cooper well. version. Yes, yeah, yeah and it was. Uh, well, it was a... It's got its good points. It's got its bad points. It was very 70s. They changed the look of the vampire. They... Yeah. It had a lot of the problems that uh, miniseries had but <clears throat> in the 70s and for 80s. For being one of the first Stephen King adaptations, period, and for being a TV event... It was amazing time, it was ever made. Yeah. For the time, it is incredible. I think it's important for the context of which it came out. Today, yeah, a lot of the teeth have been pulled out of it. But if you're going to remake it, I say remake it big, bold, bloody. Art. Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about the the It miniseries. A lot of it doesn't stand up, but there there were things that you look at today, and oh my God, the censors were shitting themselves over this. Yeah, like the <clears throat> the one where they're all having dinner together and they all have a separate hallucination. Yeah, just Pennywise letting them know he's around. He's still there, and I think it's. Harry, no, it's There's an a, eyeball in one of them. And yeah, a spider John in John Ritter's character. No, it's a Harry Anderson has the the eyeball, and apparently that eyeball that was they, they had to fight tooth and nail to let <laughs> for the censors to the, you don't show an eyeball like that with well shit hanging off of it. What I will say about the original seventies Salem's Lot is that it's got some indelible, frightening moments. A creepy kid tapping on the glass. Yeah. Which <clears throat> was really scary. The first time we see Barlow and he looks all Nosferatu was really fucking scary. And scary is what was missing from the 2004 version oh, really? of Salem's Lot. <clears throat> so you have the same problem as with the Shining one. Uh, again, I think to me, especially with those books, I'm not complaining that Dolores Claiborne or the Green Mile weren't scary because they're not built. They're not meant to be. 
But these movies are engines of scares. That's what they were they were meant to be. Especially And Salem's Lot was Stephen King's first blow up the town. That's actually we're gonna introduce well, you to all of these characters and then we're gonna fucking kill them. <laughs> and yep. that's the that's <clears throat> the story. And uh, it, you know, if if now that I think about it, if if anybody really pioneered a genre like a sub 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 genre <laughs> of horror, it's Stephen King with the blow up the whole fucking town. Well, I think you, you were just mentioning it. I think it goes back to it too. For him, a haunted house isn't big enough. He wants a nope. haunted town, yep. a haunted city, a haunted place. Because you don't get the body count otherwise. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's modernized. We it's centered around Rob Lowe with like real <laughs> cheesy, bangy '90s hair, even though it's 2004. And I thought it, he always just had the helmet hair, right? <clears throat> and it opens right away. Spitting in the purist's face. The first thing that you see in the movie is Ben Mears, the main character, having tracked down Father Callahan. And he kills Father Callahan as an act of vengeance for Callahan abandoning the town. Yeah. And that's the opening credits. And that's a what the shit moment. If you're a fan of Stephen King, we know that Father Callahan dies in the Dixie Pig in a totally different book. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, again, uh, the, they don't have to honor the Dark Tower because they're doing Salem's Lot. But if you want to piss off the Stephen King purists, you've done it in the first two minutes of your movie. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm already, I'm already like, damn it. And then you have the stylistic choice uh, of these sort of video jump flash cut things that they do between scenes. It's this desperate video edit that they like to do especially in the late 90s and early aughts it's a stylistic flash well, cut editing <clears> choice where it's like are you talking like snippets yeah. of uh, like uh, we news media scene, or no we finish a scene in a diner and then we get a, a shaky camera shot of an exterior shot and a shaky camera shot of somewhere else and then we, we settle in on this next scene uh, it's just this weird jump cut stylistic choice that's there for no reason and became increasingly distracting for yeah. me and it's unfortunate, too, because there's some interesting actors here. Uh, Donald Sutherland, I feel like, is quietly revisiting the role he played in the 1973 like, movie, Kelly's Heroes, <laughs> where he played this dude with a big, crazy beard and bulbous eyes who uh, drives a tank and does this heist. I thought that's just Donald Sutherland. Yeah, he does this heist with, with uh, Clint Eastwood in the movie, and he's like, the reason to watch the movie, his character's so fucking crazy. He plays, like, the <laughs> Renfield character in this, and at least he seems to be having fun. I don't, Again, I don't think... He always seems to be having fun in every movie. No <laughs> well, matter how small the role is, he's like... Yeah. Matt and I recently reviewed uh, An American Haunting, and I think it was a little bit on his face that he knew that that was a shitty movie. Well, but this one he's trying a little bit more, and I like seeing Donald Sutherland, uh, well, so uh, that I mean, helps. It was Donald Sutherland's idea in Body Snatchers to do that weird right. pointing thing that freaked everybody the fuck out at right. the end of it. <coughs> Nobody told Veronica Cartwright nice. that was going to happen. <laughs> Nobody told her. So she's not acting. She's shitting her pants. <laughs> well, and 
Donald Sutherland's kind of a living at legend as far as acting, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. And in a way, he kind of deserves better to be playing a Renfield figure in a made-for-TV version of Salem's Lot. But it, you know, it, it was it, nice to see him because whenever he was if, around... If you want to go back to the original source material, Renfield's a more interesting character than Dracula is. Well, in Dracula, yes. In this case, maybe Yeah, less, maybe uh, not. Yeah. Uh, he gets punked by a 12-year-old kid, right? <laughs> um, but he seems to be having fun. By all accounts, Rudger Hauer, who's... A, had already played this role before in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. <laughs> and B, was in his, you know, crazy eccentric, I've been in so many movies, I'm past giving a fuck anymore. Like, he didn't learn his lines. People had to hold cue cards for him. Oh like, God. apparently he was not not into it. And that doesn't help. No. Like I've said before again in the show, no matter what part of the movie you're, you're, you're hiring for, be it the director or a bit part, if that person isn't amped to be there, Keep looking. Yeah. <laughs> Keep looking. You're going to have to be with these people for a while. You're believe all me, working yeah, towards it, a common it, goal. Believe the two of us, if we got hired onto any movie... Huh? We... If it was, had Stephen King's name on it? If it was Trucks 2? Like, yes, <laughs> please. Fucking yeah. yeah. I'm going to give that's my it. all. Yeah, that's it. I, will, I am there for you with a smile on my face. I'm going I'm to put extra effort into exploding my head under that truck tire. Yeah. And... The, like, I like that one. The uh, The problem is, is that there's a bunch of other actors that I like in here who are floundering. I think that where Sutherland managed to overtake it just through years of experience and being able to grow a big, bushy, crazy beard, <laughs> Samantha Mathis is floundering because her character is kind of useless. And that's kind of true in the novel. The, the love interest character... Yeah, she <clears throat> is... Uh... A tool. She needs to be rescued, and that's about it. Meet, fall in love, keep, she's keep in peril, in mind, try to save keep her. Keep in mind, when he wrote that, when he started writing that movie, he was a nobody. Oh, yeah. He was, was one of his very first books. I get it. I get it. And, he, and I'm not just talking a, no, a nobody as an author, a nobody as a male who has much experience... Doing shit. Talking to females. Yeah. Or, or, like, and uh, understanding females. So his early female characters are all... When you're casting... I think I think the first time he hit it, and which is weird because he doesn't remember writing it because he was so drunk, uh-huh. uh, was Cujo was the, his first uh, real strong female character that didn't rely on others. <laughs> yeah, external influences like Carrie. Right. Well, and when you're casting uh, this big a net with this many characters, I get that we're not going to get to the spine of each of them. Like, a lot of them are going to be brushes. And again, we definitely find in, in this town there are the good denizens <clears throat> of Salem's Lot and there are the bad denizens of Salem's Lot, yeah. right? There's the good-natured doctor and there's his high school crush who allows her boyfriend to punch her infant child, right? And like, there's the bus driver who is so ridiculously over-the-top evil to the kids he, he relishes any excuse to kick him off the bus and make them walk home in the cold. And, and yeah, like, and that's the same in the book, yeah, too. Yeah, there's just, like, <clears throat> evil... The, of course, the character named Larry, who's, like, a used car salesman type of figure <clears throat> who runs the town and is a little bit inappropriate with his teenage daughter and is a total asshole. Yeah, I get we're not going to get full-fledged characters, but, but the character that Samantha Mathis is playing should be important, right? Ben Mears comes to town, and he's fighting his demons of the past... The Marsden house where the vampires have taken up has a hit personal history with it. He came there to write a book about the Marsden house. And he ends up falling in love with this girl. We need to care about her. We need to care about that relationship. and uh, Or at least see the reason why he fell in love with her. Because yeah. we are not. She's pretty. 
she's pretty <clears throat> and she likes his writing and that's all we get in the book and that's all we get in the movie yeah. and Samantha Mathis is a decent actress but there's only so much you can do with that uh, Andre Brower too uh, and it would seem like he had a more interesting role he played this this teacher who's closetly gay in a community who would not be okay oh, okay yeah that character yeah. and uh, uh, he's like have no idea what the kid one guy he, kid, he doesn't know at the time that he's infected with the the vampire sickness or whatever brings him home and and then all of a sudden realizes that this doesn't look right he's got this shirtless kid up in his bathroom in the middle of the night <clears> and he's <throat> trying to help him and as it's escalating getting out of control this is not going to play out well right like it loses uh and again andre brower made his entire career playing tightly wound characters who you know just yeah. push to the point of explosion and he's just not allowed to fire on all cylinders here it's like I don't know if it was a choice of the the script or the or, or, or of Brower himself, but the the gay character is just going to be a passive meek. I, I one question I have about the the uh, the movie version is, uh, it, it feels very necessary in the novel. As it gets towards the end, of the news articles, right? right. Just break to a, a chapter that's nothing but a news article about what the fuck's up with this town. Yeah. Has anybody been paying attention to what's going on in this town down well, the road? And again, I don't. They don't really address something, that. Something, something's weird there, and nobody knows what the. Yeah. Uh, well, because it, it really lends a, a an element of of weirdness and and mystery to it. Early in his writing, he would lean on that a lot too. Yeah, uh, Carrie is almost half. You know. There's quite a bit of that, yeah. And the sort of historical references that's largely jettisoned, and again, I think. Interestingly, I don't know what it is. It might be the original miniseries, and the book is set in the seventies too. <clears throat> well, I guess there's it's, something it's about not, the story that it feels like it should be set in the late seventies. It, it's now we're in the visual sense, so it's show don't tell, and the news articles are telling. Right, but I, for some reason the the book seems to belong in the seventies to me. I don't know why you can't have a big vampire fight in two thousand four, and it's just as interesting in the seventies. But uh, I don't know, again, maybe it's just the age of the cell phone, where if you have a hard time proving the vampires, just take a picture of this vampire you just staked. Yeah, and... <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know who, somebody wrote up something about, uh, they rewatched the entire seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. And said, how many episodes could be completely solved in five minutes if cell phones existed? Exactly. And it was like, oh my god, we gotta, Willow's in danger, we gotta get there. And, okay... There's this idea... Text, done. There's this great sort of sub-adventure vibe in the book. And again, it happens in It as well, even though it's a horror construct. There's something kind of exciting about these band of survivors who figured out early what was going on and have got together to try and you yeah. know, do something. Nobody else knows! There's a tide of, of shit working against them and no one's going to believe them if they say they're vampires. They're kind of on their own. And that element of it is really exciting in the book and just doesn't come across. Yeah. Friendship's gonna pay off one of these times. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna hold my breath. <laughs> um, so we're gonna 
disavow that Salem's Lot since yes. uh, it's been so long. It would be unfair for you to, to include it in the, in the rank. Yeah, so it's been, it's been 13 it years since either. I've seen it. I would just say, for the record, it wouldn't have placed bottom or top <laughs> for me. No. It would have been right in the middle somewhere. So, But uh, that gives you a better shot at going uh, 5 for 5 or 0 for 5. <laughs> so you might have cooked the books here. This no. could be controversial. <laughs> no, I think I think I will fuck this up for everybody. <laughs> but I guess I will ask, what was your least favorite of these trucks. five? Trucks number number five. All right. How is it in question? <clears throat> it is a B movie by the definition of B movies. It's just it's not good. Yeah. It 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 is a slog to watch. Alas. Yes. <laughs> Number four, uh, I'm going to go with The Shining. Because... Uh, there are problems. We, yeah, we said we were going to go round and round on this one, but my argument for The Shining was mostly due to... More defending the book than defending the movie in a lot of ways. Well, defending the movie, but <clears throat> for the good points that nobody seems to... That everybody... Everybody hates the miniseries. There's some real hate for this one. It's there, true. there are some good points that nobody wants to acknowledge, right. and that's mostly why I was defending that one. Okay. Uh, the top three are the hard ones. Yeah, they are. Uh, but I'm going to go with number three, Dolores Claiborne. Um, mostly just because I don't have a sentimental attachment to it. Right. And for no other reason. Absolutely uh, uh, personal bias. <laughs> Um, number two, I'm going to go with, uh, 112263, and that was a hard one, but uh, I'm going to go with Green Mile for my number one, just because I do have a sentimental attachment to that movie. Right. I, I really love that movie, and, uh, uh, it's completely subjective. <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> Yay! No scientific data needed. Uh, so by process of elimination, clearly, Green Mile <laughs> is the number one. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, that's a solid list, and we're close, but not cigar either way. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing: if Trucks was four and a half hours long, then yeah, I would put it at the bottom uh, of the list. Okay. It's not four and a half hours long; it's ninety minutes long. Uh, so The Shining is going to the bottom of my list because it's four and a half hours long. To I me, would, Trucks feels like four and a half hours long. I would say about both Trucks and The Shining is that it's for Stephen King completists only. And yeah. at that point, you're just watching it to say that you've watched all of the Stephen King adaptations. But yeah, I think You know that, what? <clears throat> I don't even count it Trucks as that. I could have happily gone my entire life... Having not seen it. Have n having never even known it was made. There's, there's definitely a curiosity <coughs> factor to The Shining, but I keep... Going back to it and hoping that I'm going to like it more, and I keep not liking it and wanting it to be scarier. So I'm putting it in last place. Trucks has a couple of things that are just so fucking weird. That inflated suit killing those two guys with an axe <laughs> might just win points for sheer stupid, sheer, crazy, sheer like, batshit yeah. stupidity. You're doing what now? What are you shooting today? What? what? 
And yeah, the, the fucking mailman being killed by a remote-controlled car that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's loopy. It's stupid. It's completely forgettable. A lot of people probably are hearing this movie existed for the first time now, and that's where it really belongs. I know I did when you showed me the placard of the six movies. <laughs> but really? What? They did another trucks? What? It has been righteously forgotten, and yes, I'm giving it fourth place <laughs> in this list. You were right about the top three being really tough, and uh, I only differ with you slightly. I did put 11-22-63 in third place. Um, Really liked it, actually more than I thought I would. Uh, It's a dense book. I like the series. I love the book. Uh, It's worth your time. It's absolutely worth watching. It's worth faith. It's it's faithful. Uh, But it ain't ain't the book. So few things are. Um, Dolores Claiborne, I think... Especially considering this is like out of the Hollywood machine, processed and stamped uh, take on on Stephen King. Really, no complaints. There's really nothing too discordant. Like the there's nothing wrong with the casting. They didn't fuck up the story. They didn't pull up too much. They didn't nope. add anything that was superfluous. Like it is an all round, completely balanced professional executed Stephen King adaptation. For some reason it's harder to get excited about Dolores Claiborne than it is about misery or or, or, or the mist or, or it for instance. There's, well because <clears throat> there's no action beats. It's a it's a straight up it's drama. It's a much more sedate psychological drama. Yep. But for a sedate psychological drama, it's a really fucking good one. And yes. I'd kind of almost forgotten about it when I revisited it and I really, really liked it. So that was the toughest, though. Between uh, 11-22-63 and Dolores Claiborne, on a different day, that might have been, you know... Yeah, depending on your mood. It's tough. But yes, even with my complaints about the book ending with the old age home, that marriage of Stephen King and Frank Darabont is just it's, unbeatable. Yeah, it He's has given us to be proven wrong. Amazing adaptations. And if The Long Walk ever comes about... Please. Yes. Please. Shit, yes. So, unfortunately, no. No prize for you this week. But but we, we enjoy talking about Stephen King. Um, in, in, in that way, aren't we all sort of winners? I feel like I've won a prize just by being here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. There it was, kids. We are now done with episode 121 of Rank and Review. What do you have to say? Did we do well? Did we mess it up? How would you rank these six Stephen King adaptations? Tell me by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca. And since you're into the whole podcast thing, I highly recommend you check out The Terror Table, another horror-themed podcast, which is uh, local to me. So please check them out. They're good. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, please keep your ear to the ground for Book of Trespasses. It will hopefully be hitting the Canadian Festival circuit. Until next we speak, my name is Larry Parsons. This has been Rank and Review.